And good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, depending upon whatever the case may be on this rotating globe. Welcome to another edition, and tonight it's going to be a very special edition of The Other Side of Midnight, where we are tracking the impossible, and tonight are going to report on both the impossible and the mysterious, and the implausible the illogical, and the inevitable. And by the time we get to the next three hours, uh, we're going to cover all those bases. My guest tonight, I'm very, very happy to have him back. He hasn't been on the show for quite a while. My old friend and colleague, Tim Ventura, he's not old. You know, We've just known each other a long, long time. I remember when Tim visited Robin and me here in uh, Albuquerque, and we had all kinds of interesting adventures and great dinners and conversation and all that. And that was so many years ago. Anyway, so Tim is with us. And the reason that Tim is with us, um, when I have an anti-gravity question, which, you know, it's not often, but there are times, the guy I think to, you know, the kind of go-to guy that I immediately think of is Tim. Because Tim, many, many years ago, created something really avant-garde and ahead of its time something called the American Anti-Gravity Foundation or American Anti-Gravity. He'll he'll correct me on the right term. And he's been working in this area, you know, since before and and, and since, since. That's why it's going to be really interesting to discuss tonight not only the current status of this impossible space drive, which was not supposed to work, which is working, as we're going to show, is being lied about, as we're going to show, and how it is connected to a bigger picture, which is part of all those other, you know, um, nomenclatures that I used just a few moments ago. So uh, Greg Ahrens is also going to going to uh, join us uh, in a little while, a few minutes, because Greg and I have been independently monitoring through sources that Greg will describe the independent tracking of this little spacecraft, you know, the little engine that could, except it can't because it doesn't have an engine. This is what everybody is missing. So that's what we're going to do tonight is correct the record and and turn the page in history because history is evolving at warp nine, mixing our metaphors madly, even as we're not watching or able to watch. Now, What's really interesting is that tonight's show is connected in a very odd way with last night's show. Remember, last night, Novus and I and Andrew Curry discussed the implications of another unmanned mission heading to the moon, loaded with gear, having a landing system exactly wrongly designed if you want to get down through an ancient glass dome. And the bet is 50-50, they're going to, like all the others, crash. 50% of the missions sent to the moon, all unmanned, of course, since 1976, which was the date of the last Russian mission, Luna 24. Half of the recent crop have, have, have failed. They've, they've crashed. They've, you know, dumbed down, ran into the lunar surface after having adventures that you could see in the telemetry on the way down. And nobody seems to be looking at this and saying, what the hell is going wrong? How come we have far fewer successful landing missions now than we had, you know, 
almost over half a century ago with the equivalent, again, quoting Spock, of stone knives and bearskins in the realm of space technology. I mean, we've got solid state this and solid state that and micro-miniaturized and, and literally 3D printed. Let me give you one example why 3D printing is such a stunning breakthrough in space technology, both in the mechanical stuff and the electronic stuff. When you make ordinary things on Earth, you put them together. You know, part A, part B, part C goes into slot A, slot B, that kind of thing. You assemble machines from smaller subunits of the machine. With modern technology, you can literally fashion in a 3D block a circuit which is literally self-contained, has all the right wiring, all the right connections, all the right voltages, all the right resistors, all the right everything, and it literally is not made of separate pieces. It's all one piece. And that also goes for mechanical things like valves and rocket engines and pumps. And, you know, in other words, the, the materials processing technology and the electronics micro-miniaturization curve, where you can do more and more with tinier and tinier, are both moving in the direction where we are so much better now at everything than we were at the dawn of the space program. And yet half our missions are crashing. Doesn't that tell anybody, as I said last night, that maybe there's an X factor, which is not being calculated into any of these super genius companies and new government moon landing programs that have been fired up since 1976. And then, of course, there's the piece de resistance, which is, if this goes on, at what point will saner heads rise up, look around and say, we got to figure this out. And then, of course, they're going to find the explanation, which is my ancient lunar dome. In all its incredible photographic glory, which we have got literally hundreds of thousands of pictures of this damn dome from space missions going all the way back before Apollo. And yet people look, and since they don't understand what the moon should look like if it didn't have a dome, I guess, uh, even though we've put side-by-side -side comparisons, nobody seems to want to get it. And I'm really thinking after all these years of talking about this and laying out repeated data, I mean, next weekend I'm going to surprise the hell out of my friend Joseph Farrell by showing him how he inadvertently put me on a trail through some stunningly new and crucial early, early data from the U.S. government on the existence of the ancient lunar dome. Something which he knows nothing about yet, even though he was the inspiration. And I'll go through how that happened last, uh, you know, next Saturday night. But the conclusion is that we know so many properties now of this dome, which looking at the publicly available data, if you look, that the smart guys, the guys spending millions or tens of millions on these missions should smarten up and look you know, around and smell the coffee and all that and figure out maybe Hoagland is right. The one nation, India, which recently cracked the curse and landed as a fourth nation to land successfully an unmanned spacecraft on the moon, uh, was India, which has enormous, incredible historic and prehistoric implications, metaphysical, 
implications, symbolic associations, ancient history, projection. It, it, it does not stop. It just begins. They made it down and they discovered something which, weirdly enough, my friend and colleague, Novus Pivak, brought up tonight. And we don't have time because it's not really the place tonight to do this, but we're going to do a whole show on what I'm going to call the scale of consciousness. And by that I mean consciousness, human or otherwise, have to be embodied only in a six-foot bilaterally symmetric hominid frame. Could you have intelligence, consciousness, at the level of a mouse, a microbe, just to give you two more data points on that curve. Is there something intimately connecting consciousness with scale or are these two variables in a variable universe where maybe consciousness could be embodied in beings much bigger than we are? Or, as Nova said last night, much, much smaller. Now, how does that fit into tonight? Because that model, the consciousness and scale of the biological package, are not really connected. Is connected through the, the theme of hyperdimensional physics. And what's happened tonight, actually happened a couple of weeks ago, but we're you know, talking about it tonight, with new data, is to be seen in my item number two and three. Because this little engine that could, if it even was an engine, Barry One, doing something we can measure and document and lay out that everybody can look at and say, oh my God, that should not be there. The official coverage of this physics-defying quantum drive experiment um, is that it, it's over and done with. They never got a chance to turn it on, et cetera, et cetera. And you can find the details if you log on to my item number two in Radio with Pictures. All of which is prescinding from my item number one. Remember how what I led with last night, this new astonishing rumor that the Russians are creating and developing a secret nuclear weapon to go into orbit and blow up all our satellites? And, of course, this is not a new idea. It's been there since the beginning of the, you know, Cold War, the contretemp between Russia, Soviet Union, and the United States, and then, you know, communist China, nations with nuclear weapons that are antithetical to each other politically are a danger of dooming the entire planet, and we've lived with that now through most of my entire life. So what's new about the idea of putting nukes into, into space? Because I don't think they're really referring to nukes. I think nuclear and atomic are code words, either consciously or unconsciously, for a political system grappling with the discovery of a weapons system development, which is based really not on nukes, blowing things up, that kind of thing, but on the precision use of hyperdimensional physics to take out from Earth orbit reconnaissance satellites of the other side, in this case, ours. And if that's what they're really talking about, 
the implications are so stunningly transformative in terms of war and our existence. And as we're going to go through the morning and talk with both Greg and, and Tim, I, I have some other dots I'm going to kind of put together in this frame and see if, you know, they resonate with uh, with our conversation tonight. But I think we're on the verge of something really astonishing, either ongoing and about to be revealed or ongoing and someone is desperately trying not to reveal it, except in the most arcane clues, kind of like um, you're talking to an audience that already knows the lingo in the secret conversation. So without further ado, uh, let me turn to my guest tonight. Tim Ventura is the founder of American Anti-Gravity, as I said, which is the nation's largest forum dedicated to exploring the physics and innovators behind anti-gravity. I mean, this incredibly mythical uh, holy grail of physics and science fiction and futurists and people that, you know, are kind of thinking that we're stuck here if we're limited to sublight travel. Anyway, uh, American Anti-Gravity explores anti-gravity, uh, warp drives, thank you, Gene, the emerging sciences in breakthrough propulsion physics, and originally, when Tim founded it back in 2002, it was a hands-on experimenter's website for the emerging propulsion technologies, and it has grown over time into a massive collection of research, interviews, scientific knowledge, all relating to this emerging space and energy science. And it currently serves as a community center for the bleeding edge research not being covered by the traditional media. You can read the rest of, of Tim's bio there, and then, of course, links to his website at the top, American Anti-Gravity. And then he's got another one now, Alt Propulsion. Mr. Ventura, welcome back to well, the other you, side for, of midnight. Thank you. thank you for having me on, Richard. Thank you. Well, it's been much, much, much too long, but it's kind of like that old, you know, I keep bringing out these, you know, commercial cliches. Remember the Gallo wine commercial? Make no wine before it's time. Yeah. Well, well um, I decided. So American, Anti- I American de- Anti-Gravity has been defunct for several years. So I, I would direct the audience probably to altpropulsion.com. Okay. That okay. would be the. So, Tim, if, if you could take off American Anti-Gravity as one of the links and just leave Alt Propulsion. And, of course, Alt means alternative, alternate. Yeah. Yeah, so alternative propulsion, and then I do a, a futurism podcast as well. And, uh, you know, I have a link there on, on Linktree to, you know, all of my stuff. So if, if folks want to learn more about that, uh, and, and that may come in handy because there are a couple other technologies that are similar to the Ivo drive. And I, I recently did an interview on one of those. So folks can learn more about that there. Okay. So for people that, you know, know nothing about all this, which is most of us, why don't we start at the beginning? Uh, let's start with experiments in the American literature, scientific literature, uh, regarding anti-gravity going all the way back to T. Townsend Brown. And then we can move from there to the current because my sneaking suspicion, and correct me if I'm wrong, but given the fact that I can find no details, technical details regarding the IVO quantum drive, as soon as I found out the company was into uh, capacitors, condensers, big time, I said, oh, 
I know what they've done. They simply put a T. Townsend Brown, you know, gravitator in a satellite and turn the damn thing on. What do you yeah. think? Yeah. Well, so this goes back to, I believe, something called Fitzo's condenser around the turn of the 20th century. And that later First of became, all, for folks that are not electronics guys, what, what are condensers or well, capacitors? capacitors. Yeah. yeah, but most people don't know either one. So, you know, be, be a teacher. Well, okay. So the, the very short part is um, if you have, yeah, I mean, any – any break in a wire will have what's called capacitance. You'll have more charge on one side than the other, right? And so, um, so you'll have like a net positive charge on one side and net negative charge on the other. Any any junction in a wire, right, where you've got charge. Now, if you make those into flat plates, you can maximize that charge and actually store it. So you store the charge on one side of a gap. And then it creates a negative charge, an opposite polarity charge on the other side, right? So, so this you, is a little mechanical gadget. Yeah, yeah. And they're all over the place. They're all over the place. I mean, there are, you well, know. Well, they've been with us for, what, a couple hundred years at least. Yeah. And they're in your electronics. They're in your phone. They're in your car. They're in, they're in everything. It's just a normal part of electronics now. Um, they use them for all sorts of stuff. You know, you can use big ones to store energy, right? And and they use those for, like, if you need to store energy and rapidly release it, right? Like, uh, yeah, the Navy was playing with rail guns. Um, you know, some of them use them for, like, battery backup supplies for instantaneous load balancing, things like that. They, they have big ones. They're, they're big cans. They, look, they just look like kind of like a small-sized paint can. Um, and there are also tiny ones. You know, there, there are probably thousands of them in your phone you know, in your computer. So they, they use them for timing. They use them for all sorts of stuff. It's, it's one of the fundamental components of modern electronics. Now, most capacitors come in all different sizes and shapes, but the ones that people are familiar with uh, are basically ribbon capacitors where they do have a, a, a large plate, right, on one side and the other with, with a gap between them, but that's wrapped into kind of a coil design and that may flex. In fact, they do flex a little bit, uh, you know, during normal normal operation. But there's there's no net movement, right? Because it's wrapped into a coil and it's inside of a I think we're getting a little deep yards. into capacitors. The key thing that Brown and his uh, uh, mentor at uh, this Ohio College found back in the what teens, that if you charge up a capacitor and then you discharge it, and it's sitting suspended by a string from the ceiling for some reason it wants to move you're not that so... was the belief and there are different approaches to it what do you mean that so was the there's... belief well that's the belief i mean it's so the fitzos condenser is is what they call a pancake capacitor it's right. a little bit different than a ribbon okay right. and so a pancake capacitor literally just has a stack of plates with a little dielectric in between them. You charge one end of the stack, and they're asymmetrically shaped, which means that which means that the, the positive plates are larger than the negative ones. And T.T. Brown felt that this created a forward motion, and it's one of those things that that comes up. Well, wait, wait, wait. When time. you said he felt, didn't he measure it? Um, there have been measurements, but one of the challenges has been. Uh, these things are typically tested at high voltage, and you get ion leakage in the air. 
And so you have to test them in a vacuum chamber. One of the other potential challenges has been uh, uh, vacuum chambers are not giant usually. So it's possible that it's being attracted to the walls, right? Because it's a high voltage electrostatic device. Um, you end up with other stuff. You end up like basically with bleed off from the electrolyte, bleed off from, uh, you know, the, the okay, dielectric. Let me, let, 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 let me interrupt. Okay. Because, you know, we don't want to spend the whole time telling people how to build capacitors. The idea was that Brown found in his experiments, not theory, experiments, that when he discharged a capacitor, it moved toward the positive pole, the positively charged part of the circuit. Yeah, and you were just point describing. Of contention for, yeah, it's, it's been something that has been tested and measured, but it's been a point of contention with mainstream science for probably about a century. And, well, and so this, all right, this, so let, me, let me build on that. The idea that you, if you can't test something like this, you know, anti-gravity on Earth, even in a very expensive, super-duper NASA vacuum chamber, the obvious place to test something as phenomenal as a space drive where if you just connect and disconnect the circuit, it wants to move, which means no fuel, no energy source except for the battery or the electrons you're supplying, which is a separate issue. And it can go forever. As long as there's electricity, which you can get from the sun in space, it can go forever. So my, my big, huge question is a geopolitical question. Based on this and what you just described as the difficulty in getting a pure answer for some critics from these tests from Brown forward to now on Earth in vacuum chambers, you would think, would you not, that the obvious logical thing to do is when spaceflight rears its head, i.e. after Sputnik, and the technology is sufficiently mature, let's say 10 years in, to send up payloads with very interesting, unique experiments like a capacitor drive, T. Townsend Brown drive. Nobody, since the beginning of the space program, at least publicly, that I've been able to track down, seems to have wanted to ever think of simply doing this. Yeah. And that's I, and stunningly I weird. Always, that is so effing weird that it doesn't make sense unless this is a suppressed technology. Well, I, I think Ivo is the first. So to be publicly tested. Yeah. Well, how about secret tests? Don't you think the military's been testing this idea from the get go? I mean Brown attracted a whole bunch of attention from the U.S. Navy, and the story of, of that soap opera is amazing, involving UFOs at some point and maybe the disappearance of the Eldridge, you know, the Philadelphia experiment at another point. Uh, Brown's life is just a stunning cacophony of fascinating discoveries, which parallel our own hyperdimensional experiments with the Accutron. He and I separately, because I didn't read the background, have arrived at the same conclusion regarding what Brown was measuring. So it really is a hyperdimensional connection. Whatever the specifics of the technology, the only way it can work is by reaching outside three dimensions of space. Uh, it's entirely possible, yeah. Well, that's what experiments are supposed to weed out, the possible from the impossible, right? So, in Well, the, I... Go ahead. I, I, I think in this case, I, so the IVO goal was uh, 
basically several micro newtons of force, which is a tiny, 50, tiny, tiny 50 amount of thrust. To, 52 millinewtons, not micro, millinewtons. Yeah. Okay. Now, uh, tell, so, people, yeah. tell people what a newton is. It's about, what, two pounds? Yeah, yeah. So very small amount so, of thrust. So it's, a, so it's a thousandth of two pounds. I'm trying to put this in perspective for people that don't deal in newtons and kilograms and all that. So what would that be? A few ounces of thrust, right? Yeah, very small amount. But, very small amount. but in zero gravity or in orbit, a few ounces of thrust for infinity in, t- in terms of space and time means you can go anywhere ultimately you want to with no fuel. Zero fuel. And nobody thought before this company to do this in Earth orbit in 70-some years of the space program. I don't believe it. So politically, when I saw that Ivo was doing this in a very public way and that DARPA was behind them, that's for those that aren't part of the lingo, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, the kind of military sky blue foundation that funds all kinds of crackpot ideas on the theory that if even only one of them works, it will pay for all the rest. Right, Tim? Yeah, yeah. So DARPA's behind this. They go into orbit on the 11th of November in a, in a cluster launch with uh, Musk and, and a Falcon 9. They're released into a polar orbit. They watch the data. The world watches the data. All these intelligence agencies, in addition to the U.S., you know, NORAD and NASA, they're tracking, tracking, tracking. And if you just look at that damn graph, my number three, just look at the dates. The orbit goes down, 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 and the velocity goes up, 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 because, of course, they're inversely proportional. The closer a satellite is orbiting the Earth, the faster it has to move to stay in orbit. Conservation of momentum. And then look at that flat bridge in the altitude plot, which is the top graph. And then it starts rising. Now, the steps are caused by the fact that they only recycle this every few days. So it's rising in between. But it, it's shown as a step function in this display for some weird reason. And look at the velocity. See how the velocity starts over on the far left and goes down, 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 the curve going up, which is down in this projection. And then it bottoms out, meaning it tops out like a, like a, like a hill, and then begins to move in the other direction, meaning down in the graph, but up in scale. And notice now the velocity is higher than when the spacecraft was injected into orbit. How is that possible that this damn thing isn't working? Well, I, I, I mean, I don't know. I, Richard, but aren't I you I absolutely I, I, flabbergasted and excited that I, it is I guess, working? I, I guess what I would say, I guess what I would say is this, BS aside, you've already kind of constructed a narrative for this story. You've already kind of put together a thread about what you think is going on. I don't necessarily support that narrative, so I'm not sure why you wanted to have me on as a guest because the story that I wanted to talk about was much different, and to be quite honest, I really don't care about Ivo. So, okay, well, hang on, hang on. That's exactly why you're here. Because well, I want, no, let's I, not I, hang on. Let's not hang on. You came into this before the show. Well, we're at the bottom. We're, we're at the bottom of the hour. Narrative. Hang on, we're at the bottom of the hour. Let's pick this up on the other side because obviously I want you to talk about these other ideas. 
But that's the current discussion in the public domain now is Barry, Ivo, and what they're trying to do. It's against but that's the, not the, that's not the story or the narrative you're trying to construct. Fine, then you tell me what the real one is. I'm telling you what I've reconstructed from public sources. So let's let's hang on. We, we got we got the break here to do. We'll be right back. My guest of the morning is Tim Ventura, and obviously we're going to hear some really interesting alternative ideas on this whole anti gravity um, controversy. When we return, you're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. Don't touch that dial. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 cents a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone, on this Sunday night, February 18th, 2024. Tonight, we're talking with Tim Ventura about anti-gravity and his foundation of a uh, uh, nonprofit uh, research and public policy institution called American Anti-Gravity, which is now segued to something called Alt-Propulsion, which is linked up there in his bio. So, Tim, if I've laid out the wrong story, I'm just telling you what is on the public record. If you know, which I'm hoping you do, a lot more, obviously we want to hear what you what you know. So go ahead. Okay. Well, so the Ivo Drive is basically another one-off of this. Sorry. T- the Ivo Drive is basically another one-off of this T.P. Brown technology. And there are there have been many, I would say, countless attempts to recreate that. Um, I recently interviewed, and I'm working with, with the Alt Propulsion Group, a team that has a device that is generating one Earth gravity of thrust. So it's generating, oh, I don't know, several thousand, maybe a million times more thrust than the Ivo Drive was ever anticipated to. They're doing vacuum testing, and they've patented it. 
and that is something that um, actually it's going to hit the media probably in about a week. So that's one active group. Then I'm working with two others. I'm hang hang on, one. can you tell us who they are? Yeah, it's it's up on it's up on my interview channel. I interviewed a fellow named Dr. Charles Bueller. It's called the Exodus Company. I believe it's called the Exodus Drive. Um, it is well, that's a different. Name. It's a different formulation. Uh, the limitation with T.T. Brown stuff, a lot of it came from materials and charge and things like that. And so they have been diligently working to Wait, but you, you, you mean that Brown had crappy capacitors? Yeah, yeah. And and that's, you know, it's, it's new technology. So, it, 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 you know, so they've been working with that and refining it and developing, as Ivo has as well. Um, so I don't I don't necessarily see a conspiracy here. I just see you know a long term progression of technology, and I've always one step. Well, well no, no, no. Let me make very clear: the conspiracy is because the companies, both Ivo, which is based in North Dakota, and Rogue Space Systems, which built the spacecraft in New Hampshire, that the Ivo people in North Dakota put into the spacecraft called Barry One named after a bat that apparently flew into the uh, offices there in New Hampshire some years ago. The the rogue space people launched the IVO experiment. And they both have come out with press releases saying, A, they've had problems with the spacecraft. B, they never turned on the drive. C, it's not working. And we'll have better luck next time. Whereas the independent worldwide tracking shows the spacecraft is doing things that it could only do if the damn thing is working and it's not turned off, it's still working. But it, could it be possible that there's an atmosphere leak or one of the maneuvering thrusters is stuck on or they just... There are no maneuvering thrusters. It, it's, it's engineless. There's no reaction control system. It's based on, on uh, a torquing you know, uh, wheels inside. They let it let, live in orbit for two months to outgas deliberately. You could track the outgassing and the decre- decrease altitude from the atmospheric drag. You know, that's what those graphs show. And then at some point, it stops falling and begins rising. And you don't think there's a cover-up, Tim? I oh, think, sure. again, again, my model is that the mainstream, the folks that are not part of the deep state conspiracy that knows a, a lot about this, kind of technology and also what's out in outer space and UFOs, UAPs, ETs, ruins, all that. They never expected this would work. And when it did, they freaked out. And they forced these two companies to come, to basically come public and claim it's not working. When in fact, just from the tracking, you can see this is not Ivo's tracking or Rogue Space Systems tracking. This is NASA and NORAD who are keeping us alive tonight looking for Russian missiles coming over the pole to, you know, bomb North America into submission. So it's a technology we critically depend upon for our very lives. And that technology is independently saying that something really wondrously weird is going on with Barry One. Now, where you and I are in total agreement, there are better technologies that either can be currently built or have been built in the past. This is Paul LaViolette's book. Or uh, will be built in the future as materials keep, keep evolving. The point is that once you have one 
working non-3D technology. Whoever it is, whatever whatever road to Rome you're you're walking down, it changes everything because it can't work in 3D. It must be a hyperdimensional, non-Newtonian technology, up to and including the whole idea of UNRWA waves and the expansion of the universe and all that. That's ultimately a hyperdimensional solution. They don't call it that, but that's what it is. So your guys are developing a ton of thrust? No, what one Earth gravity of thrust. Oh, okay. Well, that's 32 feet per second per second. But it depends on the size of the of the object, the vehicle, the test, right? Yeah, I believe they're approaching one newton. So they've got a test mass with a drive that at two point two pounds will sit there against its own weight. Yes. Wow, that's astonishing. Well, well and that's that's just one team, and then I have another research. And team how come nobody's been talking about this? You're the first guy. I got to say, Tim. You know, if I didn't know you and trust you as a friend and a colleague for years, I'd say, come on, you're, you're blowing smoke. Because something like this is so revolutionary. It, it, in the era of social media, how does it not leak out? You know, you interrupt a lot. I know. I'm right? sorry. I'm trying to get okay. to the truth. Well, I, I mean, I was just starting to say, I have another team that's developing. I, 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 I do interviews. That's what I do. I've done 350 or something of them. And, you know, I kind of usually let my guests kind of describe their story without telling them what the story is supposed to be, coming up with an ending and placing it, right? I mean, I don't want to be difficult, but you invited me on the show to talk about this stuff. You injected a narrative. You've injected a conclusion. You're saying how things work. I'm, where things I'm basing be, you know, it on... Evidence. Tim, I'm basing it on my model. You're not talking to a radio guy. You're talking to a scientist who's independently researching the same things you're interested in. I'm presenting my conclusions based on my research. You tell me if your mileage differs. Yeah, Richard, what, what, give your guest a chance to talk, okay? What, what you do I'm, this every time. You interrupt your guest. Let him talk. My, my thought would be... <laughs> There are a lot of different research avenues moving forward right now. There are a lot of things that are producing results, right? Exodus Technologies, Charles Bueller, he is the NASA electrostatics expert. He did the electrostatics analysis on the shuttle program, on all the space telescopes, all of that stuff. He is a PhD and he's credible. They are getting results. They have a patent. They have done all of the testing, and it's moving forward, and they're doing vacuum chamber testing. And what makes their work amazing is they had they have iterative results over time that are moving forward. I have another team that's working with Alexei Chikurkov on the Graviflyer. They have been working with him on the Graviflyer. That's something that your, your folks would have to look up on Google. They look up the gra- – they, they've been working on the Graviflyer for several years and they've been doing zoom calls with alexi for several months we had thought that the grab a flyer was a hoax this is a rotating mechanical device kind of like an seg but it's, it's constructed differently and in his videos it lifts off and flies under its own power and it weighs i don't know 10 or 20 pounds now in this case this team, the more they work with Alexi, the more that convinced they are that it's real. They have stuff lifting off and flying that are its own power on Zoom calls. So that's something that we're working on as well. 
then uh, Mark Sokol and the Falcon Space Team are working on, it was X-Band, now it's S-Band. They're working on, um, oh, not Alcubierre, uh, working on basically dynamic nuclear orientation, electronic paramagnetic uh, orientation. So EPR, DNL, and that's something else that your folks can look up. Or if they just go to falconspace.org, they can get kind of a better idea there. You know, those are three paths that are being worked on. You've also got people working on inertial propulsion devices. Some of them seem to generate forward thrust, but there could be a slipstick effect there. So there's a lot going on, but there are no conspiracies required to say why it hasn't. I mean, the big challenge has been um, you know, lack of funding, lack of materials, lack of scientific rigor and testing, you know. So all, I mean, those are all things that are moving forward. So my thought on the IVO drive is I think that um, I, I would view this the same way that you would view Starship blowing up on the pad, right? It's going to be a series of successive tests, and the hope is that they get funding to do more, and I hope that they have wonderful results in the future, you know. So you're not really comparing the data on Barry one with their statements. That's that's what I'm really intrigued in. Why are the two so obviously opposite ends of the pole, pun intended? I don't know, but I, I there are hundreds, if not thousands, of variables in spaceflight. You're going right to a conspiracy, right? No, I'm going to an orbit. You can't fake orbits. If you don't have an engine, you can't do anything with your orbit. You just sink into the atmosphere and ultimately burn up. How is this little guy raising its orbit when they claim they never turned it on and it's failed? They can't communicate with it. Fortunately, NORAD doesn't depend on a beacon. You know, they're tracking thousands, tens of thousands of inanimate objects, including a glove from one of the Gemini missions. So they can spot a spacecraft and measure its orbit and velocity, regardless of whether it's active or just you know a passive rock. I don't know. Now, have you have you called Ivo? Have you called uh, Rogue Systems and asked them? No hey, one have, is know. answering. We actually had someone get through on our behalf to Richard Mansell, who was the chief CEO and engineer of the IVO drive, and he said he would only talk on the air after it was successful. Now that they've announced that it's failed. You know, there should be no prohibition about coming on and talking about what happened and why it failed, and they refused to, to even answer emails or the phone. Yeah, you know. But, but their spacecraft is doing things it should not do if it's not working. I, again, Richard, I haven't studied this in depth. I don't know, but I know that space flight involves a lot of different variables. It doesn't necessarily mean that a drive that was rated for 50 millinewtons, I believe, would be carrying an entire satellite that much higher into orbit, right? When you say you have people, you know, you're obviously aware of these various experimental groups. Are you involved in any of these experiments more than just reporting? Yeah, I'm, I'm managing development of them as well as running the conference. With well all of them? Doing, um, not, not the Exodus team. No, that's an independent group. But more than one? Yeah. Okay, well, you didn't tell me that. You know, it's not come up in our conversations. We haven't talked in a long time, and obviously I should have asked deeper questions. 
See, I'm intrigued with the whole IVO thing because, again, if you prove one works, you prove the doorway is open to more than one and maybe much better approaches technologically. But it's that first white crow that is the hardest. You know the old Apache saying, right? It only takes one white crow to prove all crows aren't black. Well, the the fact that Barry One is working tonight in orbit, regardless of what they're saying, it's working. Look at the damn graph. That's impossible. Those numbers are impossible unless, A, it's working, and, B, someone doesn't want us to know it's working. Rich, can I ask our yeah, of course, a of course. question? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Tim, are you familiar with John Searle? Yeah, the Searle effect. Yeah. Um, I came across that a long time ago, and I was watching the rollers, and they're not touching the copper, but yet they're flying around this copper rings at a high rate of speed, and shouldn't inertia be pulling them away from it? Uh, that in itself is something that I don't think the physicists can explain, but yet it does uh, generate electricity and it also gets uh, super cold and it goes anti-gravity, according to John. And I think he's been onto something for quite a while and it's one of those things that we really need to look into because it's time for that kind of technology to come forward. Yeah, um, well, there there are, there are a few of those. Uh, so there is, and I, I forgot his last name. I believe it's Isaiah Thompson. I, I might be mistaken. Sounds familiar. Um, yeah. So there, there are several people though. Uh, in the 1990s, uh, a Russian team named Godin and Roshan built one. So in terms of the classic Searle effect generator, right? It's it's rings within rings. It's based on what they call the law of the squares, and it's just kind of a measurement thing. This would go to Richard's sacred geometries. But, <laughs> um, it's not mine, but thanks. You have layers. Uh, they're, they're neodymium, and then there's aluminum, and I believe uh, he's using an insulator. I think he's using a type of plastic. And so it's rings within rings, and as you've mentioned, they don't quite touch the surface. It builds up a static electric charge, and so it functions both as a capacitor and as a rotating magnetic field. Um, the Godin and Roshan one, when they fired that up, they reported what they called self-spin, it started to spin faster on its own. And this would go to the energy generation that you mentioned. Uh, they did not construct it according to Searle's blueprint. They did some cheats. And so to see if they could get closer to it, uh, Paul Murad and John Brandenburg, and, and Richard knows John very well, um, they constructed one uh, in, I believe, around 2009. And what they found was the problem is working with these kind of materials is very, very difficult. And so they made cheats as well to theirs. So they didn't follow the blueprints, but they did see what appeared to be transient weight loss. And so they would run this and they had moments where it appeared to lose weight. The problem was um, you're talking about something that weighs, I believe, I think it was 200 to 400 pounds and it's rotating at high speed. And it's, even if it's fairly precise, it bounces around. And so, so they, they used a series of scales and then they had to offset stuff like that. Um, since then, the which goes back to the problem of measuring all the stuff under one G on earth's surface. Well, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, if you can put it in space, you're able to basically test it in an environment where, um, you know, in theory, right, according to standard physics, 
even if it bounces around, you're not going to have net thrust in one direction. So space would be the gold standard mm, for yeah, testing. Yeah. You know? um, now, with the Searle effect generator, there's no guarantee. I mean, maybe it's repelling against Earth's gravity. Maybe if you get to a log range point, it loses thrust. Nobody's ever figured out whether or not that's that's the truth. But um, but you know, there have been several tests of these. Uh, again, this this recent fellow Isaiah, um, he has kind of picked up. He's he's the latest person who's picked up the bug, and he has actually been talking with John Brandenburg as well as the Kepler Aerospace team. I believe they ended up purchasing the Godin and Roshan device. And so uh, hopefully they can get some new results by either repairing or at least properly testing that. So these have been around. Uh, a fellow named Fernando Morris put up some videos. Fernando worked with John Searle for several years. He put up some one ring tests. So they're very small, they're limited devices. Um, and they showed some interesting results. Those are on YouTube for anybody who wants to look. So the Searle effect generator is it's out there, and it's definitely intriguing. Um, it's, it is incredibly difficult to build. Uh, the, the backstory of it actually, I, strangely, the backstory seems to point to John Searle as being a hoax. Uh, there are lots and lots of reasons to believe that he was not being honest about what he came up with right that the whole thing was basically a money scam in england but interestingly everyone who has built one even though none of them followed the rules precisely they've all seen aspects of this strange effect he mentioned that it runs cold that's another part and it could be because now that, that could be ionization uh breaking the boundary layer basically it breaks the skin effect you know so what, what that would do is let the – it would increase heat dissipation to the environment, but it could also be that this thing is picking up uh, heat from another dimension, which again goes to Richard's hyperdimensional model. Well, so. I was going to say the most interesting thing. Robin and I had dinner with some of Searle's people in Searle in Los Angeles many years ago when they wanted me to you know, come be part of what was going on at some level. And I came away with the problem that Searle seemed to be surrounded by wolves whose only intent was to raise as much money in a grift as they could and leave John in the lurch. And so I kind of turned my attention away from Searle. But the key thing that got me so interested in his work in the beginning was this weird thermal inversion. Normally, when you run current through wires and copper and all that, things get hot. The fact that his opponents get cold indicates clearly an anti-entropic, other-dimensional bleed-through, which is sucking energy from here somewhere else. I mean, I've, I've seen other experiments that have this as a hallmark. That was that was one of the key indicators when Art interviewed somebody who had seen a UFO hovering in the middle of the woods, and he went up to it. The thing destroyed his dog, and he was determined to somehow fight it and the thing he reports is when he laid his hands on it it was cold hovering there in the woods but ice cold he only, it was like touching you know frozen co2 carbon dioxide that's yeah. a, that's a hallmark of a hyper dimensional physics connection yeah yeah it would appear to be I mean, you know, and again, the idea is that it's moving energy into or out of another dimension. Exactly. Yeah. Which is why so, any one of these that works changes everything. 
because all we have to do is prove that hyperdimensional physics is real and then it's Katie bar the door. I just want to know why in the entire history of the space program, nobody has ever, NASA or private corporations, put together enough little tiny money to test one of these. And the, 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 you know, the brown capacitor one would be the first one because it's so simple. It's so elemental. It's like it doesn't spew out gases. You don't have to have a controlled environment. It likes to live in a vacuum better than in air. In other words, it's perfect for space. And nobody did that until the IVO people. I, I, think, I think that after languishing for, for many reasons for many years, and, and NASA as an organization, um, NASA has been stodgy. I, I mean, you my think? Air Force con. Well, my, my Air Force contacts have been complaining about them for, you know, since, I, I mean, the, the chief complaint that I heard was that we would have achieved all of Kennedy's goals and far beyond um, in terms of space, in terms of moon colonies and all of that stuff, had it been left with the Air Force. And by handing it over to NASA, they moved it into kind of this bureaucratic you know, dustbin, right? That that doesn't seem to, uh, you know. I mean, NASA has a standing army for everything, right? That's been one of the chief complaints. <laughs> they tend to be anti-progress. They, you know, there there have been lots of complaints about NASA. So, um, really, so I that, haven't noticed that slowed things down. But um, I, I think what changed, and I, I, you would probably agree with Elon Musk and SpaceX, right? And you know you could look at that different ways, but I mean, if nothing else, they've they've put enough shame to the NASA efforts that um, you know that NASA is starting to pick up the pace. And I think the other part too is, again, Starship. I think they had something like twenty prototypes blow up on the pad, and and so uh, the NASA approach. They were very public about this for years was failure is not an option, right? But the problem is when you're working on the edge of new technologies, failure is almost guaranteed, you know? You just have to keep pushing forward. And and so again, this, this brings me right back to the IVO drive. I think it's okay to fail. It's okay to have things blow up. It's okay to have tests that don't work. You just have to learn from yeah, that. Yeah, but it's not okay to be better. lied to, Tim. I, I think philosophically or politically we have a real logarithm. You don't believe in conspiracies. I'm not a conspiracy person, no. Well, that has nothing to do with being a person. It's being looking at data and seeing when someone is putting their thumb on the scales. I, I, Richard, I don't have enough depth on that particular one to be able to say. But what I would say is every time I've looked carefully at a conspiracy, you know, I, I haven't seen enough to prove it. Are you familiar with uh, Salvador Payas's patent that he patent for the Navy? Yeah, I, I know Sal really well. Uh, he's presented at the conference several times. I talk to him all the time. <clears throat> what do you think about his um, patent and his uh, concept? Well, I think he did a bunch of initial research, and he put the idea out there. They got some funds to test it. They got some interesting results, but they just weren't able to go further with that. He transitioned uh, into a role that is closer to the Space Force, and he has a new boss now, and they've asked him to keep a slightly lower profile in terms of patents. So, um, you know, that's that's not a cover-up. That is, he was making so much publicity, he would put something out there, and it would come back to his group, 
right? And maybe she's like, well, Sal, what have you been up to? Well, you're causing trouble again, you know? Uh-huh. Okay, so, so the folks that are not following this, what kind of drive is he patented and what is it supposed to do? Um, he has several different variations on it. Um, and, and, you know, I don't want to go into depth on the technology, but and people can look up his stuff. He's done several different variations on it. Um, he's had some RF frequencies. He's had some cavity stuff, some resonant, resonant things. So I, I would say that people. So it's, so it's an EM drive derivative. Three minutes. Yeah. 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 I'm watching. Thanks. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, you know, uh, I think that his work is, it, it's wonderful work. Again, it's initial. I don't believe that any of it has been constructed on a large scale. It's just something that, you know, needs more time and attention. But his role has changed a little bit, and so he can't work quite as publicly as he used to. When we come back, I want to talk about these companies that you're, you're um, you know, hurting, like hurting cats. And which one is going to be the next one to reach orbit successfully? Because frankly, I don't think on Earth today in the the current geopolitical situation that unless it works in orbit, no one's going to believe it. I don't know. Potentially, you know. Well, have you seen any change in the landscape down here? I mean, you've got all these guys doing amazing things and nobody's noticing because, you know, having a two pound gadget that hovers with no engines, no rockets, no jets no propulsion of conventional means is stunning and the fact that nobody's picking it up on social media and talking about it is because it's it's lost in the sea of noise and it needs to become a signal which means it needs funding to go into orbit and we're literally at the bottom of the hour so let's hold it there my guest this morning is tim ventura with very interesting contributions by our resident alternative technology expert keith morgan You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. TheOtherSideOfMidnight.com Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com.
Welcome back, everyone, on this Sunday night. It's the top of the hour. It's 11 o'clock in the evening here in the Land of Enchantment. My guest this morning is Tim Ventura. Tim, how long have you been shepherding your cats? And which one is at the head of the runway so you can get into orbit and kind of test this in, in ways that people will take notice of? Well, so I've been working with, again, uh, like three different development teams for, you know, I don't know, um, three or four years now, something along those lines since we started the conference. And, um, you know, it's I I would not put it on a linear schedule that way. You know, Um, it's everybody has kind of their own approach and different obstacles and challenges and different things they have to prove. Um, in the case of Alexei Kirkov's Gravaflyer, again, anyone who wants to look that up will see countless videos from him. <clears throat> Excuse me. I believe that the general consensus, and I felt this way myself for a long time, was it was a hoax, but nobody could demonstrate how he was hoaxing it. Um, at first, people thought, oh, he's using strings. And then he did demonstrations where it was obvious that he wasn't using strings. And people said, oh, he's using a pole. Okay, well, other demonstrations where he's not using strings or a pole. And um, over time, what happened was people who couldn't debunk it started to pick up interest in it. And so you have this growing So what are the interest. capabilities of this technology? Well, it, so in his case, he has, I mean, simply put, he has... Uh, he has two counter-rotating plates and a a Tesla coil charge plate between them, and they have magnets on them. The whole whole thing is Rube Goldberg device. You know, it's pieced together. It is a contraption. It is not a a (laughs) well-engineered device. And again, he started putting these videos up years ago, you know, and, and, uh, you know, people just wrote them off. They're like, it's a hoax. But over time, you know, people who looked carefully and couldn't debunk this started to say, wait a minute, okay, it's not this, it's not that. Maybe there's something more here. So for the last couple of years now, um, a couple of diehard investigators, so one of them is a PhD student, the other one is a you know, retired Air Force guy, they've been working with him, and they both have really good heads on their shoulders. And And everyone, in his case, everyone is well aware of the hoax potential because that's where it started, right? It's it's like, okay, that's where we're coming from is this is probably a hoax. But what's been interesting in his case is – Let me say it again. Our predisposition based on the fact we've been – it's been drummed into us for – since we were born that this is impossible, that this is science fiction. There's no way that real physics, you know, works like this. Is it, of course, if it looks like it works, it has to be a hoax because our mindset is it can never be real. That's yeah. what that, I, I see. I look at this big picture and I'm saying how in an era where we literally went from going to the moon on the backs of cereal boxes to putting human beings on the moon. Where this technology should have been moving at light speed to get into orbit to demonstrate it's real. Nothing has happened until well, IDO. You know, Richard, at the risk of sounding pandering, I think that this is one of your, I I think that this is one of your strengths, you know, back, back when I was helping with enterprise mission, like you, for instance, most people don't know this, but um, you, I, I, I believe this was way back in the day. uh, I mentioned to Arthur C. Clarke via email that I was working on your stuff and, and he lit up 
Arthur wrote back and, and Arthur C. Clarke wrote me back a lengthy letter talking about your work and how he was a giant fan of your work and what? He was so interested in it. Yeah, this was I've many, never heard of years. this. Oh, yes, many, many years ago. Oh, and do you have a copy? I do not. Oh, I do not. No. This was 20-something years ago. Um, tragic. So, you, you know, one of the things, one of the things, and this goes back to Coast to Coast and all of the other stuff, I'm not conspiratorial, but one of the areas where I'm a firm supporter and firmly aligned with where you're at is the big picture view of things. And one of the things that I have seen is, and, and again, not not through suppression, just through changing times, right? That era of science fiction is has come to an end, largely. But wait, what, what do you what, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean, your classic science fiction writers now have mostly passed, right? I mean, um, Clark is long yeah, gone. Course, yeah, but, um, but there's there's new generations, new knowledge to be won, new frontiers. There, there are, but they've gone more towards drama, and and so your 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 Jodie Foster contact moments are becoming fewer and further between, you know. And and so one of the things that I think people are forgetting is this tremendous idea of what's out there, you know. And that's something that you have. That is a part. That's that's a part of your tradition and your heritage, right? You mean um, why why we should give a damn? Why it's all important? Why it's overwhelmingly important? Because obviously what we're doing is not working. Just look around the planet tonight. Well. Yeah, like for instance, one of the so one of the things that interests me, this has been kind of my bent for a while, is the Drake equation, right? And yeah. um, I, I've done a bunch of podcasts on this and interviewed many scientists, and no one disagrees with this. The problem is, I think it's it's become kind of people get used to it, they normalize to it, so they quit thinking about it. And Frank Drake had always said uh, there were about ten thousand alien civilizations out there, and the assumption you has mean been, within the Milky Way. Yeah, within the Milky Way. So you're starting with 100 to 400 million stars, and potentially Drake just, you know, pegged it and said, okay, about 10,000. You know, the Drake equation though has all these different parameters, and so and most of them were unknown. In fact, they all were unknown when he wrote it, and they're still mostly unknown. Now, now one of the interesting things that that I've taken away from that 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 people just don't think about. It's known, right? They just don't think about it. Is According to the Drake equation, for every one of these 10,000 radio-using civilizations, you may have tens of thousands, potentially millions of planets with some form of life or other on them. They're just not communicating. Right. Right. There could be dinosaurs. There could be – you know. and then the other part is the L term, the length of time for each of these civilizations – so, you know, when you when it you turned start out that really... was that was a really important determinative factor in the whole Greek equation. How long does a contemporary civilization exist, a high tech civilization defined as that which can broadcast radio? Right. Yeah. And, and then so... the other question is, how long? Is, see, if each one is very short, there will only be like a handful in the galaxy at any one time and they probably won't find each other. If L is very long, meaning they live hundreds of thousands of years of civilizations, then we overlap and the odds of, of finding somebody else to communicate with is supposed to be almost duck soup. And the fact that we found nobody through SETI, at least we're told, again, indicates that either we're very, very, very rare 
or there's something really unique about the human condition, meaning we're not being allowed to know we're not alone. And that brings up Ball's zoo hypothesis and a whole bunch of other derivatives. I would probably lean towards the zoo hypothesis, to be honest. And that's that's the UAP issue. And yeah. I'm sure your audience is aware of this, that Congress and the Senate have been having a fight over UFO parts, <laughs> who has jurisdiction, right? And yep. so so change is happening, you know? But but I think part of it is reaffirming for the public and reminding them of things. Yeah, but wait a minute, know. Mr. I don't believe in conspiracies. If the fight is real, if there really is a food fight over who's going to control the technology of UAP, UFOs, whatever the U.S. government has been quietly assembling for 70-plus years, obviously there's a conspiracy because nobody told us. Potentially. Well, they denied know. it. I don't know who has what or where it is. Yeah, but or again, it, exists, it goes back or... to first principles. It's not the details that are important. It's the whole idea. They either have, yeah. they either have UFO tech or they don't. Well, they either have that, bodies or they don't. They my, either my, don't understand how anti-gravity works or they don't. My thought, my thought on that is in terms of our news cycle, and I'm sure you've probably seen this also, it seems like for the last two or three years we've had some kind of a big announcement or other every three months. Now, if you were being conspiratorial, what you would say <laughs> is we're on a timeline. Yes, right? that's exactly what I say. And so if we're on a timeline, then probably maybe March or something, uh, maybe around You're the, very we close. It's the end of February. Okay, so in well, fact, in yes. fact, it could be as early as next weekend, next Sunday night. Yeah. So, but but what I have seen is, uh, you know, and, and I would say, I would say that we have seen a lot of change. Um, I, I, I'm always interested in the psychology of this, right? But um, it seems like society in general kind of went off the rails with the pandemic. But then things completely lost it last year. Last last February, just about one year ago, we had Chat B, Chat GPT cursing out users online. That was <laughs> that was unique. And and uh, Biden was shooting down Chinese weather balloons with F-16s. That was I think that was kind of a new low for America. Um, and you know it, it's it's almost like we crossed a threshold into crazy then and. Um, you know, and then shortly oh, I after think, that, Tim, we've been in crazy for much longer than that. What I see happening with UAP, I, I don't know where things are at. I can tell you as much as I know about UAP. Um, I, I have contacts all over. I'm pretty open about that. I have contacts all over government and the defense establishment. And many of them, especially the active service members, at, at all levels are interested and quietly asking questions and They've all pretty much come up empty-handed so far, and so it's one of those things where, you know, it's like you ask your buddies, and they're like, yeah, well, there's something going well, on. Well, then what so, is your opinion? This is obviously related intimately to our conversation tonight about the technology. What's your opinion on, on uh, Grush and his, his testimony? Well, here I, I have a couple of thoughts, I guess. Um, so That's why I ask. Like every, I guess, like everyone, like everyone, uh, his his credentials seem impeccable, right? And so, uh, it's it's very very difficult to argue against his credentials. Uh, his medical history was leaked, which was a violation of HIPAA. Uh, I believe the organization that leaked that, if they probably got it from you know some deep state person. 
Um, I, I think they're going to be in big trouble for that. It didn't show any serious conditions other than usual PTSD from being a combat veteran. Okay, well, that's you know, there are so many American service members with PTSD that you know that does not. Well, mean but do you remember what the committee members in the House committee that held the hearing at which Grush and was it Gray? I forget the other other uh, Air Force guy. Um, who talked about the Cuban tetrahedron scene? And oh yeah, yeah, the yeah. big one last summer. Yeah, yeah, yeah last well, August. Yeah. Okay, so that committee finally got a skiff briefing, you know, secure facility briefing by the Inspector General uh, of the DoD, or, or was it the Intelligence Committee? I forget which one. And all the members came out, and the reactions were very amazing. We've actually shown the video in previous weeks. Some of them looked like Bambi in the headlights. They had this kind of dazed look, Tim, like they didn't really believe anything until this briefing, and they came out shell shocked. And you others know, said on the re- so others said on the record. Let me finish, please. Said on the record, nothing we saw discouraged our estimate of Grush's credibility. Yeah. I- the, there was a moment in the briefing last August, even though they couldn't do details. And uh, you, 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 Ocasio, mean the, you, you mean the public hearing? The public hearing, yeah, where they had Grush and they had Ryan Graves on live and, television. And, yeah, and and I remember they they went through the whole thing, and um, you know, I I, I had a lot of takeaways from that, but that there was this one specific moment where Ocasio Cortez, I forgot her first name, but the the one that everybody loves, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez. She is very. She's a social activist, right? Yeah, she's right. Not a UFO right. person. The whole nine yards. Not a tech person. Not a not an engineering. Not a financial person. She's a community activist who wants to do activist. Yeah. yeah. She, you know, and and she leaned forward, and I remember thinking in my head, she had this look on her face, and I was like, Yeah. I wonder, I wonder what she's going to say, and she opened her mouth, and I thought, Oh, that's it, and then she started asking these really deep thoughtful, intelligent, meaningful questions. And it just hit me. I said, oh, my God, this has gone mainstream. It's gotten through. So yes, I, my it's thought just him, is so what I'm UAP, saying is the biggest barrier is that if you think something's impossible, you'll never look beyond the edge of the paper to see maybe I've been lied to. What, what, I, what I would say is in terms, of, in terms of hiding UFO stuff, this is just a guess. I'm just guessing. If I was going to hide it, we've had several presidents who have supposedly been interested who haven't been able to get the info. Um, we have a lot of people in the military that are interested who are coming up fairly empty-handed. If I was going to hide it, I, I would hide it in the DOE. And in the, there are a couple of reasons. One of them is they handle all the nuke stuff, and, and mm. they've got the – the apparatus set up to hide all of that. You know, while I hear something really weird, your theory is actually true, and I'll tell you why. When I was with CBS and Cronkite, I got to talk to, at some length, the head of the lunar seismology experiment. Remember the first seismometer on Apollo 11? His name was um, Gary Latham, Gary Latham from Columbia University. And he had some really amazing data as the missions went on and I went back to try to find him, and you know that they had moved him from a government consultant to NASA to the bowels of the DOE 
to keep people from looking at his seismic lunar data, which feeds into the model that I've been talking about. So, yeah, the government does move people around like pieces on a chessboard. And the way you bury someone, if not physically, at least academically, is put them in a deep government agency where no one will ever think of looking. The difference is DOD is highly visible. That's where everybody has been looking for UFOs. People are coming up empty-handed. DOE is much more opaque. They're much less visible. People don't pay a lot of attention to them. There's, excuse me, one other difference as well, though. And again, I could be mistaken about this, but your entire classification system, your secret, top secret, all that, that flows from the president of the United States. So even if it's top secret, compartmentalized, yada, 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 if it is in that system, the president should have full access to it. That it comes from presidential authority. Right. Um, The DOE, the, uh, the Q clearance, right, which is the nuclear one, that was established by Congress. That's legislation that applies even to the president. Yeah, no, no, it's a perfect idea of moving them around like, you know, so, three-card Monty. Yeah, so that, you know, but now in, in terms of UFO stuff, um, I've, I, you know, I've heard a, a couple of stories. I heard one about, uh, this came from a, a credible source that I trust, but it was secondhand in his case. He worked with a bunch of EG&G contractors who claimed ah. that they had a, a piece of what, what looked like foil, right? Like your Roswell wreckage. Right. And what he said was they would put this in a room and it would naturally move to the kind of the cubic center of the room, right? So height, width, length. It would what? naturally. And wait, 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 wait. That... You know why that's incredibly crucial and hyperdimensional? Because a cube are two interlocked tetrahedrons in three dimensions. Yeah. In other words, the cube itself is the, is the conduit to hyperspace and this little piece of material because of forces that we're not measuring, centers itself symmetrically in the center of the double tetrahedron. Yeah, and the other thing that he wow. said was, if you tried to touch it, it would move out of the way of your hand. And, <laughs> it didn't and he like said them. That it was, he said one of, the, one of the gags that these guys would play is they would, when they had, on the rare occasion, they had someone new in the project, they'd you know, take them inside and have them try and hit it with a stick. And he said they could never hit it. It would move out of the way of the stick. So that's that's one story. Um, no, wait, but how did you – you got this from an unnamed source that you trust. Yeah, yeah. Just, you know. Um, but this source so, had it secondhand. Yes. They had it from the EG&G guys. Okay. So, you know, just little stories like that. But um, – you know, in terms of in terms of the big conspiracy stories that are out there, um, like for instance, you know, the U.S. has this TR3B and they've replicated this and it uses a plasma drive and all of that. I've never seen any indications that that's the case. I've never seen any kind of infrastructure or apparatus to build those. What about the you mysterious know, so, sonic booms over L.A. during the 70s, where they were uh, assuming it was coming into land at Edwards? And obviously they couldn't shield the shockwaves from the, you know, deceleration. I think that was Aurora. I think that was Aurora. Okay. So these yeah. are so these are separate vehicles, separate developments. Yeah. Well, Aurora was that was your hypersonic. Right. right? That right. was the one that Paul Sis worked on, and 
they and the, the way that they identified that popular science did a big article on it was they had ufos that were traveling what, what looked like ufos that were traveling westward over uh over northern california and then they they had ufos that were traveling eastward <laughs> over southern california and basically your your MUFON people got together and figured out it was the ball exhaust right from oh, the, you yeah. know, the hypersonic and and so they figured out this thing was traveling so fast i think like at the time i think this was like a mach 6 you know uh that it took the entire state of california to do a u-turn basically <laughs> well if you're not going to so, squish the pilot flat yeah 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 um you know and so i i believe there are faster ones too and paul paul indicated that they may have one that goes up to almost orbital velocity mach 24 uh, you know, and then then the question would be like, well, what would you use an aircraft like that for? What would you use a Mach 24, you know, air breathing jet for? And my best guess would be you could use it to put satellites up into orbit in uh, unspecified trajectories, right? Because right now, anything that we launch, the Russians can tell where it is by its initial launch directory. Mm-hmm. Trajectory. But if you wanted to put up a spy satellite and have it, you know, have it out of sight, you could basically use this aircraft and, and you know, get it right up there. And Or you launch it regularly and then you use an IVO drive or an equivalent inside and you change its trajectory totally at random and no one can figure it out. Yeah. So, Mike, you know, there, what's happening lot, with Barry 1? You know, now this would go, again, going back to the Drake equation, one of the things that I think is really exciting is that we are on the verge of this social transformation. And and this isn't just space. I think AI plays a role, right? Um, you know, it's, you know, it's all of these technologies moving forward all at once. And, and I think that it is opening minds. And so one of the thing, one of my hopes is that people start to return to the things that you have talked about, the things that Arthur C. Clarke had written about, start to look at humankind as part of a much larger canvas of life in the galaxy, right? Carl Sagan, right, with contact. I mean, for me, that's, that, you know, I, I, I love that idea of it. And that would probably go to the zoo hypothesis as well. You know, so well, the reason that these technologies I think are critically important far beyond what they will do is because they open people's minds to the idea that we're not locked in a prison. It's an open system, not a closed system. You know, these these drives are reaching beyond the closed system, which means anything is almost possible. All you got to do is follow the follow the lead, follow the trail. So let's go back to your guys, your your cats that you're herding. What is their research plan to go from lab demo to commercial technology? What's their learning path that they're following? How are they raising money? How are they gaining credibility? Are they looking at space development to demonstrate in orbit that they've got something real? In other words, that's the kind of thing that IBO did that attracted me because they're in orbit. Nobody else has got that far yet. Yeah, and a lot of that, you know, a lot of that I prefer not to talk about. It's proprietary, but I, I would say that we're, you know, we're working on things. And right now, it's, it's, you know, it's still initial experimentation and lab stuff. And, you know, when when the right time and the right place comes up, then we'll kind of move forward with that. But, 
you know, I, well, I, I try not to get... Like in the next week, there should be some movement on that front? Public uh, movement? We will see. We will see. Um, <laughs> you, you know, we'll see. I, I mean, I... You know, it in it's it's real world testing, right? You have, you know, the good, the bad, the ugly. Things break, things go bad, the whole nine yards. But you know, it's to be normal, it's to be expected. In the case of the grab a flyer, um, it's entirely possible that it is a hoax. But the deeper they get, and the more they work with them, I mean, again, they're they're doing Zoom calls where he is walking them through replicating these things, and he's got them lifting off and flying in the Zoom calls, right? You now. No, wait a minute. That, the, are these guys that have independently built a version of this guy, gadget, guy's gadget and it works? Uh, they are in the process of building several replications, and he is working with them. He's on the other side of the world, so they're using Zoom for it. Okay. And he is walking them through it. Um, you know, the the challenge with things like this is they're difficult to build. They're touchy. You know, especially when you can do. This is the one that's a combination forms. of electrical and mechanical, and it spins. Yeah. Yeah. So there's his. Well, remember um, the first three laws of hyperdimensional physics: rotation, uh, rotation, rotation. Yeah. Well, this would this would definitely apply, and your Searle effect generator would probably fit yes, that as course. well. Um, you know, now Exodus Technologies, and again, that's not mine. That's that's an independent group. Um, they they continue pushing forward, and uh, again, I, I would say if people want to look up, you know, if they want to look up Dr. Charles Bueller Exodus, they could probably find it. Do all these people do all these people have like websites so we could just put them in your section of Radio with Pictures? I could put links up to different presentations. Exactly, that's what we need. Yes, yes. You know, in in their case, so we're uh, one stop shopping because sending people out on the internet is dangerous. In in their case, they sent they they were getting thrust comparable to the Ivo drive uh, two three years ago, and they changed approach instead of working with basically it was the kind of ions they were interacting with in their capacitor circuit. They started working with bound ions, and they started to get progressively higher and higher and higher test results. Mm. Um, in, in their case, they have done thousands and thousands of tests, and many of those, especially in the last two years, have been vacuum chamber tests, right? And they're right. getting thrust and vacuum. So, you know. So okay, the, the IVO drive claims it's got 52 millinewtons, which I still would like a pound equivalent. It's a few ounces out of one watt of power. Okay, your guy that's levitating a, a two-pound mass at one g, so it hovers. What power level is is his device requiring? Uh, I don't remember offhand. Well, I can I can describe what. So what what they charge it up, and the thrust is based on the charge, not not power. Does that make that problem? So, so wait, sense? you mean his power source is a draining capacitor? Or, or capacitor bank. As long as you, as long as you maintain, as long as you maintain the charge, it produces thrust. Oh wow! Continuous. So, can, yeah, that's because Keith Townsend Brown's was was impulse. He noticed that it wasn't continuous, and it actually worked down in steps. Which you're I, talking about, uh, yeah, Jeff Menko. That's and Jeff Menko is a little bit different. That was the spark shock. Well, that goes um, back to T. Townsend Brown. He first observed yeah. that it was impulsive. It wasn't continuous. 
So these guys have something which if you feed the capacitor with a battery, it maintains a hover? Uh, yeah, and it, it's not, in, wow. in their case, it's not lifting off. It's on a scale, right? So right. It's, it's, you know, the whole thing is bolted down. It's very precise. But, um, yeah, so, you know, those are, I mean, those are a couple of them. Uh, David Perez, David Paris, he just put up a video. Uh, he claims to be generating a fair amount, and his video seems to demonstrate that. You know, their role is sources for error, so we'll see. In his case, he's using uh, basically VHF signals at high voltage, and he's using a specially constructed fractal waveguide. Okay, hang on. We're at the bottom of the hour. My guest this morning is Tim Ventura. We're talking space drives. There are many roads to Rome. But again, I'm, 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 I'm trying to put forward the idea. It's almost irrelevant except for efficiency. Which of these two of these teams, these groups, succeeds first? It's the technology, the physics behind it, which represents the breakthrough, because it shouldn't be possible under current physics for any of these gadgets to work. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hogan. When we come back, we're going to call in Greg Ahrens to give us an update on my perennial problem, which is those graphs show this thing is working. How can you cheat DOD and the uh, NORAD people? How can you move a satellite unless you move a satellite? You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. other side of midnight.com tune in to listen to richard c hogland and his fascinating guests support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation join club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, on this Sunday night, grading in the next uh, half hour or so into Monday morning, which is a national holiday. I believe it's President's Day, apropos of a totally different conversation. My guest this morning is Tim Ventura, and we now have with us Greg Ahrens. Now, the reason that I'm calling on Greg to come in and 
talk a few minutes about all this is because Greg has been doing the kind of in-the-trenches research since the launch of Barry One. He's been following with these various tracking uh, websites, which all feed back to NORAD and NASA, the movements of Barry One and a couple of commensurate satellites that were launched by Musk on the same Falcon 9 into the same kind of general orbit, you know, apples to apples. Greg is an associate of the Enterprise mission. He uh, worked with me back on uh, the Norway spiral back in 2009. He says uh, in his bio that he became interested in space at an early age, and he watched the early Project Mercury launches on television in grade school. Gosh, that sounds familiar. His youngest brother was born on the same day as John Glenn's first orbital flight. His father was a mathematician and a systems analyst for a major aerospace corporation, and he became an avid reader of his dad's Aviation Week and Space Technology magazines. He's also served in the U.S. Air Force. He studied political science and uh, has a B.A. in individual studies at Columbia College in Columbia, uh, Missouri. So, Greg, what is going on with Barry One? Am I looking at these graphs dumbly, stupidly, absurdly, or is it showing us something in direct contradiction to what they're telling us is going on? Greg? Yeah, yeah. There okay, you. Yes. are you there? Yeah, we can hear you. Okay. Yeah, I clicked the button and it, it bounced back and went back <laughs> off. But anyway, don't I got you, it now. Don't you hate those bouncing buttons? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, I got kind of some bad news for you, Richard, because uh, of those the three that I've been tracking uh, that were all launched on the same date from the same uh, <clears throat> the same rocket and everything right. from SpaceX. Um, Barry One has gained five uh, five kilometers, but Observer One A, which is made in South Korea, has gained eight kilometers, and it it also doesn't have any propulsion. And do we know? And, then and we know. Do we know who's behind it, and what it's supposed uh, to be doing up there, and who launched the company, it? Company uh, Nara N A R A right. Space Company out of South Korea. Okay. And it is. Um, now I'm trying to remember. Now it's per, they're building a they're building a set of uh, part of it is to observe ocean. I think ocean. Uh, Currents or ocean traffic or something, I think. Right. Unless that's the other one that's Lemur 2. There's one called Lemur 2. Uh, well, there's several. It's L-E-M-U-R, like the, the animal. Lemur. Right. Lemur 2 Good Vibes was one of the one of the satellites that deployed just shortly after Barry 1 and Observer 1A. And it's by a company called Spire, S-P-I-R-E. It's gained one kilometer. And it's a small. I don't believe it has uh, any kind of propulsion either. It's 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 a smaller. Um, I think the Barry One is like twelve uh, twelve kilograms. Well, it's supposed to be twelve cubesats together. I think. I think no. It's it's like it's a six unit. I think. Okay. Okay. Half that. Okay. But I think Observer One A. I think is also a six unit, and then the Lemur Two. Good Vibes is a, uh, I think it's a three-unit 
uh, and it only weighs a couple of kilo, kilo, a couple of kilograms, maybe three kilograms or something. Right. So it's a smaller bird, but it's gained one kilometer. Well, doesn't this strike you as kind of bizarre? It, it, it Orvis does. don't was, do was, that. Was, I've been following Orvis since one. They come down. They don't go up unless they I'm have su- an engine. I'm surprised. Yeah, I was surprised at it. I didn't know what to. And I, I, I sent a message by Facebook right. over to South Korea Observer One A, and I asked them, what, "What's uh, does it have any propulsion? How is it gaining altitude?" <laughs> They, they said it didn't have any propulsion. They didn't get an answer back on how it's gaining altitude. So maybe, I think... maybe they don't know because they're thinking, look, Tim, would you agree that we're dealing with a physics where we basically don't know anything? <laughs> um, well, I, no, I, no, I, okay. I, I think that again, I, I think that it would probably be premature to try and track trajectories based on the rockets, you know, or why, try and why? try and I, I think it would be premature to try and make a statement about the performance based on rockets. The these capacitors and the results that they produce are are weak today and probably remain weak. Again, you've mentioned like something like fifty millinewtons of thrust, and so in my case, I. I I would attribute any kind of strangeness to, you know, it could be many, many different things. Um, well, you, you need to be specific because you can't change orbits against energy. In other words, if, if a satellite is raising its orbit, it's it's reflecting more energy. More velocity is more energy, you know, one half mv squared, kinetic energy. So where is the energy to raise the orbit coming from? I don't know. If they have no engines on board. Let me give you a really bizarre idea. You're familiar, guys, with the concept of Cavorite from H.G. Wells, right? You're not quantum Cavorite. It was a material he invented, science fiction. He painted on a spacecraft a huge sphere, well, relatively huge, you know, several tens of feet in diameter. And he and companions got inside and they released the the uh, the brakes and they shot up into the air in terms of anti-gravity and they went to the moon first yeah kind of like your your skylark of space yeah and basically the idea was that cabarite was a material that the inventor in in well's story painted on the sphere that made it resistant to gravity it was an anti-gravity shield okay when i say we're dealing with unknown physics one of the things I would recommend, Greg, is we pick another satellite in a similar orbit that had nothing to do with this mission, because what might have happened is that something turned on the Barry One drive while they were all still in the canister before they were dispersed. And it's, this is a field effect where it affected the inertial properties all of these spacecraft, even if they did not carry the drive themselves. Now, I don't hold, I don't hold that idea really, really religiously. I'm, I'm really, well, I'm willing to, you know, look at another. But I know orbits cannot change by going up by themselves. The energy is always conserved in the equation. You can't create more energy than is there. The amount of energy in an in a orbit is finite. If parts of the orbit are raised, other parts will have to decrease to keep that equation balanced. 
in our normal 3D, you know, four laws of thermodynamics universe. If something unusual is going on, it may be because it was exposed. They all were exposed to a physics that no one knows at all how it really works yet. Hmm. I, I thought of that also as a possibility or a, an idea anyway, but yeah, I don't know. But, we knew, but the fact that you send an email to a company that's got a satellite in orbit and they're selling a service and they don't respond to an honest question, uh, sir, how is your orbit changing when you have no engine on board? <laughs> well, isn't that suspicious? Well, I should, yeah, I should get back to them. Yes. That was a while back, yeah. And we need to pick others that were not on that launch because I will guarantee you, based on the science I know, every other satellite comes down. It does not go up unless it carries fuel and an engine. The only, the only thing I was thinking was maybe, well, of course, maybe, um, remember when the, when the Apollo came back from the moon and they said, well, if it comes in too steep, it, uh, if it comes in too steep, it'll, it'll shoot through the atmosphere and, and burn up. But if it comes in too narrow of an angle, It'll bounce off the top of the atmosphere. Exactly, it's like surfing and, on the atmosphere. And send out into, send yeah. it out into. Yeah, well, yeah, I, and that's, I, I wondered if, if it could be, and it, I wonder if the angle, of, the angle of attack, right? Because there are some atmospheric molecules, even if it's space, there are still some random ones. Oh, they're, they're, the about, they're attack... about 319 miles up now. The space station is about a hundred miles below them, and it experiences drag but it doesn't experience even with those huge panels it's not surfing on the atmosphere it's not gaining orbit yeah. it's always losing so the idea that we're looking at surfing with the molecular density at that altitude which we can know because there are measurements numbers no it's not surfing it, the energy is huh? coming from somewhere that it should not well the other thing is it's you know our the typical equation of, of an orbit is, you know, based on a one-body one uh, problem. You mean two-body? The, the object well, that yeah. is orbiting and the object that's orbiting. The object that's orbiting yeah. and, and, like, the Earth and the satellite. Right. Okay. Because every other force is the... so way down in the noise, it's not even measurable. What, the no, sun and the moon? They're not measurable. What about on, tides? On a low Earth orbit, you mean, you mean lunar tides? Yeah, but but see, that depends on the motion of the Earth around the sun, which is about a degree per day, and the motion of the moon around the Earth is to 13 degrees per day, and those tidal effects are experienced also by the Earth. So the Earth is moved under the satellite, so there's no relative motion, tidal motion between the satellite and the Earth. Well, it can, it can, well I was thinking, it could raise, it can raise the it can raise the Atlantic and the Pacific Ocean several feet at times, and then maybe it could raise a little 24 pounds. Well, but if, if, that, if that was true, in those graphs, you would see a wiggle corresponding to the frequency of the month and the frequency of the year, and we don't see either. Okay. Yeah, well, well, Richard, I had a thought on your nuclear thing, too. Um, it, it's it's not again not not conspiratorial in any way. Wait, wait, you mean, but, the, you mean the story I talked about at the opening of the show? 
Yeah, yeah. Okay. This is kind of a rumor that I've heard, but again, basic basic logic. Um, so once upon a time, as as you well know, right, the Russia and the U.S. both had a limited number of very large, powerful spy satellites in orbit, and as well as communication satellites. Just the number was very limited, and so in terms of disrupting enemy. Um, you know, communications or spotting or anything along those lines, right? If Russia wanted to go after us, they could develop like an ASAT, anti-satellite weapon, right? Yeah. Missile or anything along those lines. The problem has been, someone pointed this out to me last week, um, deployments like Starlink have changed that because you have thousands and thousands exactly. of satellites yeah, in orbit. Yeah. And so what, what this person was suggesting was, that, that Russia may, if they were looking at a nuclear weapon, which, again, no one has said that they are, but if, if that was what they were doing, the reason they would be doing that is that's probably the only way that they could affect all of our satellites at once because it's not like the old days. Yeah, but go so. back and read the German guy who echoed what I said the night before. If anything like this is used, everybody dies. It's, you can't be selective. Um, way back when, when Edward Teller, remember the inventor of the hydrogen bomb after uh, – uh, Oppenheimer, you know, successfully produced the fission devices. Teller later in the in his career, because he was very uh, pugnacious, he wanted to develop a working functional ab- anti-satellite system. And hmm. so what he created was a hybrid of a small nuclear device in the kiloton range, which would then be mechanically aimed through rods, I forget what the nature of the rods, what they were made of, but what would happen is as the nuclear detonated, the energy going through the rods, which of course were sticking out like a sea urchin or a porcupine in all directions, they would be turned into X-ray or gamma-ray laser emission. Yeah, that would make sense. Yeah, and, Yeah. and, And that would allow you to, with a relatively tiny nuclear device, to aim energy selectively on a very small target through the rods. Their physical size would limit the beam. And so you knock out their electronics with gamma rays or x-rays produced by this device. That's not what we're talking about or what the Russian intel is telling us. This is something really, really brand new. I don't think it's nuclear at all. I think that's just the understanding by maybe the chairman because anything at the sub atomic level is basically you're back into ether and hyperdimensional physics. So I think that it's talking about a hyperdimensional weapon, which if they are perfecting it, they can take out all our stuff and leave all their stuff totally untouched. Totally. Yeah. I'll tell you the thing that it it worries me to see space weaponized. Well, it worries all of us. Yes. That's why we've got to come full circle on ET disclosure as soon as possible. We need something big enough to change the equation so it's not a zero-sum human game. Yeah. No, I, I, would, I would completely agree with you on that. And, and again, this, this goes back to the vision of the 20th century, right? It goes back to the Kennedy administration and, and all of the stuff that you came up promoting, you know, and, and those great thinkers of science fiction, which is that we are part of a larger canvas of life. And, and we need to quit beating each other up because, you know, I mean, we don't have a lot of, you know, we're, we're reaching the point where it's just going to be the end, right? And we don't want that. I mean, nobody wants that. 
the Russians don't want it. We don't want it. The Chinese don't want it. So we need to figure out how to get along. Well, again, that's why some of these cutting-edge technologies, which are based on a totally different physics principle than we've been taught, because we're we're not being allowed to see everything that's out there. Um, you know, it, it's basically a race between that or catastrophe. Yeah. Well, and I, I think that what you've said about disclosure is also along those similar lines. And again, I, I can't help but wonder, you know, it seems like there is a timeline. It seems like every at this point, every three months or so, we get a big announcement. Right. And they're growing. Right. And again, going back to David Grush, um, I, I know there were indicators there beforehand, but. As far as the public goes, it, it was, okay, we had this Lou Elizondo narrative, and it was fairly well-contained, and it was all new school UFOs, and, and then all of a sudden, he just comes out of nowhere and disrupts it, right? But, but the way that he disrupted it connected it to a much larger narrative, and now we're seeing that start to unfold. So I don't know. It's strange days. Well, the fact that those congressional folks came out of that meeting – and they all look like death warmed over as opposed to a uh, sigh relief. It's just all, you know, it's a hoax. It's he made it up. He's he needs a medical furlough, whatever. You know, when the chairman says nothing we've learned, you know, undid our our belief in his credibility. And he's making amazing com- comments and, and assertions. Right. Yeah. But they back up a huge backlog of this reservoir of innuendo about all this that is decades old, decades. With very- For me, this, this causes confusion too. And I, I don't have, I don't have any answers, right? I don't even have a strong opinion, but I've, I have felt that but before this, before David Grush, I was kind of thinking these are some kind of robot probes, von Neumann probes, something along those lines. You mean, right? you mean from somewhere else, someone else. ETs. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, our galaxy is is about 13 billion years old. We're latecomers to it. So even if we're limited by time in terms of interacting with or communicating with these other civilizations, it's likely that their robots are out there, right? Which is what the Sentinel, which is what what you know, 2001 was all about, was yeah, was the, these you know these species are out there in their remnants, I guess. And what Grush is saying is very different than that. He's talking about like, you know, little green men and flying saucers. So that it, it's, he's talking about the classic UFO narrative, right? Mm-hmm. So I, it, it's, this is the part why it's very, it's, it's difficult to know what to believe, you know? And in that regard, I'm just kind of waiting to see what shapes out of it. See, one of the things I wanted to talk about tonight, and, and you introduced this perfectly now, why should we care about any of this? Think of this technology as something we, is real. We can with it. We can manufacture. We can you know develop it better. What do we use it for, and how will it change the human condition for the better? And we'll start with Tim. Well, I think that it has so many applications, and for me, it's so let's looking... be specific because most people out there are not following this day by day. They probably don't even think about it from week to week. So let's show them why this is important to think about, make a public noise about, and try to get to the truth about. Yeah, I I mean, we can accomplish lots and lots of goals in space as is, right? 
But you mean, but when you, mean you, you mean using rockets? Using rockets, right? Yes, but but when you start to look at at bigger, longer term projects, when you start to look look at the expansion of humankind throughout the solar system, right? You get into things like asteroid mining. You know, rockets just don't work. They don't have the range. They don't have the speed. And it's always this dangerous endeavor with limited fuel. It's one of those things that we can limp along with, right? We could potentially even, you know, we can do, uh, you, you know, Elon Musk's vision of colonizing Mars with rockets. But it doesn't work well. It's always going to be dangerous. It's always going to be resource limited. And and so when you start Which to get into things you're like... Which means you're also speed and time limited. Yes. In other words, it's, it's always going to take you about nine months to go from Earth to Mars or Mars to Earth, depending upon, you know, what rocket you're, you're using, like Musk, the Starship. But you're limited by the fuel and the thrust and your the so-called least energy Holman transfer orbit, which means you have an impulse at the beginning and then you coast for nine months and then you land at the end of your journey, either on Earth or on Mars. But you really can't do much to change the nine months. Yeah, and to make things even more interesting, I had a discussion with someone over at the Aerospace Corporation who was working on uh, nuclear fission fusion drives. Right. And and I, this was this was two weeks ago, right? So this was fresh. And well, I was saying, well, thank God, that's the future, right? That's what comes after rockets because we know they'll work. You know, it's there's it's not. It's not based on any miraculous technology. It's well, wait, wait, wait. Back during the Kennedy administration, he had a choice of developing Nerva, which was a <laughs> nuclear rocket that worked. They ultimately got the damn thing to run in the desert there in Nevada for tens of minutes or 30 minutes or an hour, whatever. It was an amazing demonstration of a thermal nuclear rocket where you, you know, flow hydrogen through a fission nuclear reactor. It generates yeah. thrust, it shoots the plasma out the back end through a nozzle, and it moves it forward, and it's so much more efficient than chemical rockets by a factor of maybe two or maybe even three. But you're still limited. It, and, and interestingly, and this is what just kind of shocked me, right? Because I just assumed fusion was next. It's like, yeah. okay, well, that's next. You know, we'll get there, right? You, you, and, mean, you mean a fusion rocket? Yeah, because, because again, you know, when you're talking about stuff like the Searle effect generator or, or warp drives or anything like that, there are a lot of big question marks that nobody knows. And, you know, and even if we see initial results here on Earth, even if, you know, we see scaling, we see things moving forward, we just don't know. But with fusion rockets, it's based on, you know, very predictable, right? It's the rocket equation. And so, so we know, okay, you know, it's... Well, there's a few little know, engineering hurdles like, ah... Well, what surprised me was he was saying that once you take into account the cooling equipment and the mass reactant and the weight of the drive unit and everything else, he said fusion drives with today's technology don't actually outperform chemical rockets. What? Yeah. Well, because, and, and I, because, I, because in fusion, you've got a million times more energy pound for pound than you have in, in chemical, chemical stuff. A million know, times. You have to translate. You have to transfer that into your propellant, and then you have to dissipate the heat. And I think that was what they were struggling with. The coolant systems are, are what he said was the coolant systems for this thing are, are just an absolute nightmare. And he said when you work the math out on for it, he's like, 
mathematically, it's not really any better than chemical, and in some cases worse. That would be bizarre if that's true, because you're using up a factor of a million in the size and weight of the radiators? Yeah, that radiators, and then you have to remember that you can't, in terms of fuel, right, you can't do, I mean, and, and I'm sure they could optimize and improve all of this, but you're, like, you're streaming your hydrogen through, you're using your reactant, your boiling water, something along those lines. Right. You still have a reactant, right? Even yeah, though, right, after the fuel. Newton's third yeah. law. That's, so why there are, there are of... That's why these field technologies are so radically important, because not only do they liberate you in terms of space flight, they liberate, in terms of the physics, so many other implications on Earth. Two minutes. Thank you. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it, you know, it's all of this is messy. It's messy science and engineering. <laughs> but, um, you know, but I, I'm, I, I'm very much an optimist. And, like, for instance, ChatGPT um, is being used for research on this stuff now, which I think is interesting. I should mention that. It sucks at math. But it is very good at going through papers. You can load papers into it and use it to do research. So which that's, is, which that's, is why what's going on with Barry One is so incredibly important. When you look at that graph, you know, we were talking a few minutes ago about was it surfing on the atmosphere and basically raising its orbit that way, which means it's stealing orbit from the apogee. Look at the graph. Look at how it descends in those funny stair steps. That's the timing interval. And then it, it's a flat line, right? Yeah. And then it begins to go up. Why is it going up? Because if it's surfing, it was surfing from the very moment it was launched out of the Falcon seconds. 9 canister. Why is it surfing only after we started the mission? Like months later, two months later. Hold that, thought. Maybe they... Hold that thought. Hold that thought. We're at the top of the hour here. My guests this morning are Tim Ventura and Greg Ahrens is with us. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. The other side of midnight.com. Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Listen while you travel or as an environment to your endeavors. Eight cents an episode, two and a half cents per hour of content. The other side of midnight.com. 
And welcome back, everyone, to the other side of midnight for this Sunday night. Now, Monday morning, my guest this morning, Tim Ventura and Greg. And, uh, Greg, why don't you kind of think about the implications of this? Because we've got a literal working example, and I can't think of any way in conventional physics that the damn thing can be working, let alone have affected, have been infected its companion satellites. That, to me, is an area we should really be looking into, because if it's an exposure effect, it means maybe IBO has not been honest about even what they're doing, and what they're doing is so at the cutting edge, nobody has any working engineering or theoretical models for a drive that's able, just by sitting next to another spacecraft, to infect it with reduced inertia, so its forces also act anomalously. What do you think? Well, that's that's pretty out there, but I, I wouldn't, you know. Oh totally come on! I've, I've come up with much more out there theories than that. Yeah, and there, there was another thing that was interesting. These, you know, as we were following, uh, tra- you know, the the daily tracking of the Barry minute one. by minute uh, altitude and and velocity, we were noticing that. That there was a instead of being like the, the typical the typical orbit is supposed to be the apogee at one end like an egg you know farther out at one end and closer in at the other end of a, of a 180 degree orbit but we were finding the, the, as the satellite was going south over Antarctica was at its highest point at the apogee and then it would start descending and it would get down to a certain low, going north, a little bit above the equator, about 10 degrees north or something. Would hit it would hit the, hit the perigee, the yep. low point, low spot. Then would start gaining altitude again, go over the north uh, Arctic area, and then it would come down and drop not as low, coming south again. It would lower in altitude, then pick up again and start going. A higher altitude Which again. Which is not back. how orbits are supposed to be. They're not, and they're all. And the. the <clears throat> I'm not. Sure, I haven't really. I haven't looked at on Lemur two, but on Observer one A is also doing the same thing. So, there. There's something weird with this. <clears throat> you think? <laughs> I think. You know. I, I mean. Wait, I wait, that, go ahead. Go ahead. What I had that thought. You know that maybe something. You know, just uh, by association, you know, because it's hyperdimensional, it might have, like you said, infected the other the other birds. When, I don't know how many they, they launched. What, 195 or not that many? No, it, 180 it, something. It, it, I think. It, I, no, I thought it was like 90 something. Okay. Yeah, I think it was 90 in, in their cluster because you can launch an awful lot of small cubesats from the mass that a Falcon 9 can put into low Earth orbit. That's, right. why you, that's why you get this ride sharing. And actually, it doesn't cost the rogue space systems much at all to hitch a ride because the space, if it wasn't used, would be, you know, just sitting there not being used. So that's not efficient. So Right, yeah. No, I did watch that. I watched the video of, of on YouTube of, you know, where they deployed the various uh, satellites. And, you know, they launch one every – or deploy them every – they pop out of the holder yeah. sideways. And they they do it every you know every couple seconds they deploy another one mm-hmm. and then they announce this one's deployed this one's deployed 
this one's deployed. And that's where I picked up the names of the other ones I wanted to look at. Yeah, I think we need to look at a satellite or satellites, plural, that are not launched by Musk on this mission, that are independent, that are truly separate. Because if it's a field effect, if all the other little payloads were infected by whatever, you know, technology IVO is really testing, um, it could be profoundly important. Profoundly. Whoops. Oh, yeah. I think we should do that. Okay. I think uh, they were supposed to be launching another set of them a couple of days ago, I think, maybe, that are going in a slightly different uh, – a different uh, – what do you call it? Inclination. Well, it's, a, it's a polar orbit. It's yeah, a polar but, orbit, well, but, but it's, it's not actually, I think it's actually tilted 1997.5 degrees, so it's not exactly polar – that's why you get a retrograde uh, tilt, and it looks right. like it's walking west as opposed to east. Like yeah, I think, I think the other one's supposed, the next one's supposed to be going slightly east. Okay, well we're we're I'm, we're, we're, we're sure. kind of down in the weeds. Let me, okay. uh, uh, Tim, have you envisioned like your ultimate mission if you had an anti drive at your disposal and could put it in a spacecraft and send it somewhere? Where would, what would your targets be? What would you like to look at really close up and do it in just a few months as opposed to having to wait years? Like for, you know, it took nine years for New Horizons to get to Pluto. It's going to take seven or eight years for the uh, Titan mission. Uh, uh, what do they call that? Um, uh, not Firefly. What's the name of it? Dragonfly to get to Titan. So have you got your list of missions where a real space drive would show us stuff quickly? Uh, you know, I would have to kind of give that some thought. I I would say, like, in terms of applications for this technology, some of the areas that I'm most, most interested in, um, like, I, I would say right now, probably EVTOLs of some kind, right, for Earth transportation, and that wouldn't even go into space. Um, but you know, so, so, we're, and, we're, and so we're talking thrusters that are pounds as opposed to millinewtons. Yeah, or, or, yeah. or tons, depending upon their efficiency. Yeah, I, I'd like to see things get there. And then I, I think also, I think that the moon is incredibly intriguing. You know, and I, I you know think? That this is something that you do as well. <laughs> uh, so you know, again, going back to Drake, uh, Dr. Kevin Newf, right, who you may be familiar with, he he's a UAP investigator. He basically attempted to redo the Drake equation, which is a little, there's a lot of hand waving and, and general well, yeah. guesswork there. But his his thought was when he went back and redid this, he said, okay, if there are these different civilizations in the universe, and he put this into a computer plot, right, and did a uh, what are they called evolutionary simulation, where it just plots, you know, based on it just says, okay, there are five plots, how long they take to colonize the universe and explore it, you know, the, sorry, the galaxy. And the long and the short of it was with this revised equation, his thought was that if extraterrestrials had found us, they may have found us up to half a million, potentially several million years ago. And okay. again, this goes, this goes right back to Arthur C. Clarke. So, um, so this idea of, you know, are there things on the moon? Well, that's where I put stuff. I mean, it's if if you know that there's a planet that has life, 
and you know that that life is evolving, you know, and they arrived here when it was dinosaurs and primitive life or whatever. Even even if UAP are here and they're doing something, presumably you've got multiple civilizations that have you know steamrolled through our solar system at one point or another. My thought would be you'd leave something on the moon because that's the closest point to keep an eye on things. And like Arthur C. Clarke had said, you just wait for wait for some sign of, sign of life. Yeah, right? before Maybe we leave radio. before we leave that uh, in your items, you have a video from Martin Reese, item number one in Tim's items which says AI, SETI, ET, and the Sentinel. What's that all about? Yeah, well, we were talking about that idea, you know, that, that, whole, that the, the whole idea of um, extraterrestrial civilizations may have been through here, and if so, they may have left relics of some kind or other, as you firmly support, and they may have left monitoring devices to keep an eye on us and wait for us to become intelligent. There's all sorts of stuff that we should be exploring, right? And so the moon would be, for me, the moon is the best place to start. It's a heck of a lot easier to get there than Mars. Well, yeah, I mean, and and, 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 the, and the current mainstream name for this is techno-signatures. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So science is caught up to your vision, right? Because this is something you've been talking about for yeah, decades. Yeah, because I'm looking at artifacts, and techno-signatures are artifacts in architecture. So what's really interesting, Tim, is that from the last time you and I talked, your friendly local neighborhood space agency, NASA, they have opened an official office of extraterrestrial archaeology, i.e. techno-signatures, at NASA headquarters. And they're looking for evidence, they claim, all over the solar system. And, of course, where are they looking? Well, the first place to start is to their own data. So at some point, if the system is honest, they have to report out exactly what we found. Yeah, so I, I would say that's a, that's a victory. I would call that a victory for your work. I, I think that you could look at that as a long-term victory. It is society and science is finally catching up with what you saw decades ago, you know. And and it just wasn't ready to accept well, it, and now it, it's becoming it, more ready. Remember, you're the guy that just mentioned the time-release aspirin model. My feeling would be the reason it's happening now is because it's time for it to happen on somebody's calendar, clock, whatever device they're using to measure when we're ready, a la Brookings. Now it's the time to get pregnant. Potentially. I mean, you know... It's, I don't know. I, some of this stuff, I, I don't have answers. I'm just guessing like everybody else, right? Right. Well, let's go back to your target list. I'm astonished you haven't thought of places you would like to go. I've got a whole list. You want me to start? Well, I'm thinking you probably want Europa, right? Yes, because we've just discovered, it's too bad we don't have Andrew with us tonight. Europa is covered with ancient architecture covered in ice. Yeah, and then Mars, and Mars is, you know, and, and you everybody wants that to. You that relatively calmly. Did you know well, that that Europa is covered with ancient cities? Well, Europa, Europa has all sorts of different stuff that's that's interesting about it. I, I'm not, I don't know one way or the other about. So you have not the, seen these pictures. Mm-mm. Okay, no, after the show, I will send you your, your set of pictures, and you will be boggled. All right. And we but just Europa found, also potentially has oceans with it, life in and them, life right? in, inside, and we could test the whole model. And you know there is a mission going, a conventional NASA mission, 
leaving, I think, this fall called Europa Clipper, right? Okay. It's going to send a conventional rocket-powered spacecraft on a several-year journey to Jupiter to go into orbit around Europa and begin to look for the things that you're obviously thinking about, which is, is there life in the oceans? What I've just added to the conversation, which is there's stunning buildings all over the ice on the surface, which we just saw from the latest Juno close flyby. I mean, you know that we got a spacecraft in the Jovian system making super close passes to these moons, right? Uh, yeah. Sorry, I'm distracting myself. Yeah, I, I and there's a... architecture showing up in all the damn pictures of the moons. One so, of, our, one of uh, our colleagues from Britain, Ruggiero, and I are working on something we're going to talk about in a week or so. We have found a stunning collection of artificial structures on Io. Now, why is that important? Because Io is a volcanic hell. So for anything technological to survive and look like the remains of a city, given what's going on around it and the volcanoes and the ejecta and the lava and all that, that has to be relatively recent in the history of the solar system. Otherwise, it would have been destroyed. We haven't talked about this yet on air. This is the first time I've mentioned it because it's too long and complicated and the images are too amazing not to look at carefully, but it's looking like artifacts. The guys at headquarters are now looking at steady artifacts in the solar system are going to have a tremendous boon of examples to choose from if they ever get around to it. So I don't know if you have talked about this on air. I'm doing an interview Monday with one of the people in the project, but which project? project? So so there are two upcoming projects. Which project? Okay, so the, the first project, the one I'm sure you know about, is the Nancy Grace Roman satellite, right? Yes, yes, right. It's and, basically and, and, a follow-on to Hubble. Yeah, yeah. so it's – well, they're, what, they're, what they're saying is it's the successor to Webb, and it's going to look for exoplanets. Do you know that I worked down. for Nancy Roman at Goddard? When I was working on the, on the, on the uh, uh, astronomy book for Goddard, Nancy Roman was chairman of the department, and I actually had an office next to hers. Excuse me. So what's what's even more interesting for me is, and I, I this was kind of buried when I was doing research, they're going to use the results from Roman, and in 2040, they're planning to launch what they call the Habitable Worlds Observatory. Right. And they, they want to hone in on those. So I'm not sure if you've talked about that on air, but that's – for me, that's really interesting because they're looking at potentially direct imaging of, you know, exoplanets of habitable worlds, right? Which, which I think is, I, I think that's a tremendous leap forward. Well, it's it's obviously what Webb is doing quietly behind the scenes. Are you familiar with the parameters of the Trappist One system? Um, somewhat. It's a, it's, I, a, it's, I, it's a planetary system. It's got seven Earth-size planets all orbiting in precise mathematical precision around an M-type main sequence red dwarf star. And it's 39 light years away. And all of the environments are like, what are the odds that you're going to have one Earth-like planet orbiting a star, let alone seven? In other words, if anti-gravity is real, 
and hyperdimensional physics can be, you know, mastered and utilized. And you have a very advanced ET race that wants to build a planetary size amusement park. How about taking seven Earth-like planets and putting them all in orbit around the same star so the paying guests can go from a Arctic world to a jungle world to a sulfurous, in other words, you put all the fun stuff right close to the Earth, 39 light years away, and you arrange it so from Earth, the planets of Trappist-9 all cross the star, and from Trappist-9, all Earth's solar system's planets cross our star, and so each system knows exactly the parameters of the other, which are 39 twice 19.5 light years apart. And, and our imaging of that is just going to get better and better. And As better we build bigger and bigger and bigger space telescopes, yes. So one thing I wanted to ask was, because I know that you're looking at artifacts on the moon, our imaging, just commercial imaging, right? The kind of stuff that people can use in their backyard that you don't have to go through NASA or any of that stuff for, that is getting better. Have you oh, it's getting your- astonishing. I, I posted a picture last night by two amateur astronomers located at least 2,000 miles apart. They don't know each other. They both have 14-inch celestrons. They have state-of-the-art digital imaging cameras. They've taken pictures of the moon, very high-res close-up with what's called stacking images, eliminating atmospheric scintillation. And they both have independently come up with stunning images of the damn dome around the moon. Yeah, yeah. That, and that was what I was wondering about. Yes. Yeah, and, and what the stacking part is really interesting also. And that's something that you're seeing in modern digital cameras where it can yep. basically yep. take multiple sequential images and put them together. And so if you were able to find more people with the celestrons, you could create better and better and better imagery of that too. Well, they're, they're all out there on the web. You just have to Google, you know, lunar close-up color imaging. And the, and the amateur astronomers, the high-end people will just come tumbling out of your computer, and then you just look at what they're doing. But no one's paying attention. See, they don't know. When they look at their own photographs, they don't know what they're looking at because what they're looking at is supposed to be impossible. And, and as far as getting news out there, and this, is, this isn't space-related, but this is one of the things that I've encountered – one of the problems has been media fragmentation, and so it is getting more and more difficult for anyone to get a message out there now. Um, and that's that's because there are so many different media channels fighting for, you know, attention. Right? That it is it basically it's it's all becoming noise. That's so, the problem. Uh, exactly. So you and I have been talking about this for years. I remember when you were looking at redesigning enterprise, you know, public outreach and public face and media presence and all that. What is your solution to the fragmentary people's attention has a million different places to go. And so nobody is saying anything that anybody is paying attention to. I'm not sure if there is a good solution now or not. You just have to keep reaching out. You know, we use multiple channels. I mean, well, that's not very optimistic. Well, I mean, I you know, it's Twitter, Facebook, that sounds you know, like Instagram. The Kobayashi Maru. Yeah, it, it's the no-win scenario. Everyone is struggling with the the same challenge, and and I think that it, it hints at some larger. So the problems challenge too. is how to become a signal in the noise, right? Yeah, but the, well, see, the problem is everyone wants to become that signal, so then it becomes this 
that's you know what I mean. That's the the Kobayashi Maru. Yeah. So it's, then you so then you look at the players in the field and you see which folks are succeeding in getting their messages across and who is not. And you know who is succeeding? Who's who's that? Taylor Swift, Donald Trump, Elon Musk. Anything that will change and fundamentally revolutionize and save civilization is getting zero. Zero. Well, yes, I, I would agree with you. I, you know, so what I've seen with my podcast is I'm serving a bunch of different little micro communities, right? Like, uh-huh. uh, you know, I've, I've done stuff on the global consciousness project, right? Some of the classic coast themes, you know, Art Bell covered that years ago, um, you know, as well as AI and, and a lot of that. And, and what I'm seeing is, um, fundamentally, the majority of humans are only interested in bread and circuses and, and intellectual communities like ours, like space, like right. you're serving, we're, we're just smaller communities, right? And, and so, you know, the people in these communities, we find each other. Okay, hang on, we, hang on, hang on. Given that's true, and I agree, why are we not still in the conventional stupid model that's not true? Why are we not still living in caves? How does humanity make any progress when most people are totally uninterested until they see it and can buy it and use it in any of that progress? Because it's all just theoretical. It doesn't affect I, them. I, I, think, I think that these smaller intellectual communities find that people find each other and reinforce each other and, and connect. And, you know, and that's, I think it continues on the web, right? The web is just becoming a, a digital version of, of the way humanity has always been. You know, the vast majority of people are, are really focused on tangible things that are right in front of them, their day-to-day stuff. And, you know, and people who have higher ambitions and deeper ambitions, these are smaller communities that, you know, the people who listen to your show, right? And then they'll take your show and they'll so, go on the web and they'll tell their friends. And So wait, 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 you know, Mick, I'm, I'm, guys, close your ears, close your ears, okay? So you're saying we need to build a better mousetrap? Well, potentially. I mean, in other words, you could... this technology, unless it's in Kmart, <laughs> nobody's going to give a damn. Oh, you're talking about like propulsion type stuff? No, I'm yeah. talking about the inverse of the equation because if you solve the hyperdimensional physics of a fuelless space drive, you change a few little parameters, as I said in my promo for the show tonight. And you've got unlimited power in a device the size of a bread box in every home and apartment all over the planet with no need for centralized heating, electricity, air conditioning, digging fossil fuels, you know, pumping oil, digging coal. It totally transforms our relationship to, to life, the universe, the environment, and our future. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess I have a couple examples that come to mind. Um, you know, the, the the biggest one, right? I mean, we have a couple examples that we can draw from here, you know? And, and this would apply to what you're focused on. This would apply to AI and a lot of other stuff as well. But, like, okay, so I, I have a Tesla Model 3, right, in my area because I live close oh, to really? Canada. Yeah, so gas for us, gas prices exceeded $6 per gallon two years ago. Oh, my. And 
you know, and, and I did the math and I was like, you know what? It's cheaper to just trade in. I had a Ford Explorer. I traded that in, you know, did my down. Good now for I have a you. Wow. And what I found it's, you know, they're, they're not perfect, but what I found is you, you know, you drive it just like a normal car, come home, you plug it in, you forget about it. You just don't put gas in it other than it's a normal car. <laughs> right. Um, you know, it, it, does it have range issues? Yes. I mean, it's perfect for daily driving, but you know, if I, if I want to drive a couple hundred miles in a go, then I, I probably need to stop and charge. This was a revolutionary technology even 20 years ago. Right. I oh, mean, yeah. people were like, Electric vehicles will never happen. It'll never be here, right? And now it's I was here. writing it's, about them in the 1970s, but that's well, neither here nor there. Yeah, yeah. It, well, and and it, that was one of the reasons. It was this, it was this impossible technology that would never be here, and the majority of the public ignored it. And now that they're aware of it, they're like, yeah, that's cool. And well, hang on, hang on. Keith, Keith, are, Keith, Keith, are you there? Keith, I hope he hasn't gone away. See, Keith and I talked about technologies that are limiting electric vehicles now, and it's basically the battery, right? Well, so here's an interesting. This is this is and this is this. I think I, I'm gonna. I don't know. I'm gonna proselytize for America, but <laughs> this is the benefit of the free market system, I guess. Yeah, of course. Is that because demand has increased for these? So the, take the model. Okay. When when they came out with that Model S, if I remember right, those we're, we're, initially, we're, we're, we're talking Tesla now. Yeah. So they when they first came out with those, they were over one hundred and fifty thousand bucks each. Right. right. Nobody could afford them. I mean, and and so it was a few rich folks had them as toys, and that was it. And they got better at making them, and the price came down. And they got better, and the price came down. That Model S now is around eighty thousand dollars, which is still prohibitive it's a high-end luxury vehicle yeah so so the model three when they came out with that they said okay we've learned enough that we can reduce the cost right we'll get rid of some of the non-essentials it still has the benefits it's you know it's all-wheel drive and all that stuff and so when they released that initially it was fifty thousand dollars which is still expensive you know well, so when I bought mine, and again, I was buying just the gas crunch. I was doing my math differently. I paid the 50 thou for it. I'm like, okay, you know, that sucks, but I'm still saving some money. And, and so what I have seen is in the last two years since I bought mine, you can buy used ones now as well as used Model Ys for about $30,000. Wow, and those those are cars that are like new. It's you're talking about a car that's two or three years old. It's an electric vehicle. There's no, you know, the performance is the same thing as your high end, pretty much, and it's the price of a normal car. And and it's it's these economies of scale, right? But and see, so and we we have to take a break here. We'll, we'll come right back to this. If you invert the technology that IBO or your guys are working on, and you create a power tap into another dimension you wind up with infinite range for your tesla because you never need to change batteries again yeah hopefully. infinite range hopefully. Well, well we'll find out why you keep saying hopefully you know you're on the other side of midnight my guest this morning is uh, tim ventura and greg aarons is still with us if greg you have any things you want to interject please feel free this is a conversation show it's not an interview it's conversation, of which we have much too little, given all the extraordinary stuff going on. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. 
One half hour to go. Don't touch that dial. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. everyone on this last half hour on this Sunday night program which is trying to grapple with the implications of the discovery that forces and energy are not limited just to three dimensions but that you can move in three dimensions by invoking forces that come from outside the proverbial three-dimensional box in other words we're talking about the foundation the technological foundation for what you're hearing in the background, the development of Gene Roddenberry's vision of a real human future, an unlimited future, a federation. And so much, much, much more. So let's go back to my uh, question, which is if you had an unlimited space drive, where would you want to go? Was that just for me, or was no, that for your other guest also? No, it's also for Greg, and then I'm going to uh, chime in with my first bet. I have, you know, kind of like a little list. Yeah, well, again, I, my my choice would probably be the moon. I would start with the moon, and I would want to colonize the moon. That that would be that's okay, my Okay, so, 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 you're, so you're leaping to the end of the story. So I'm talking about how do we get from where we are tonight to where this kind of future that that music, you know, exemplifies is, is real. And it's not going to be with manned missions. You've got to start small, which means unmanned spacecraft tests like Barry 1, like your guys working in their vacuum chamber now, 
Is anybody talking about taking that technology and putting it on a rocket, putting it into space, and showing the world that it works? Yeah, but they don't have a schedule yet. Okay, I'm aware yeah, well, that's, that's that, fair. That'll that's change. Fair. That'll change. You know, I, it's, I, and, and right now, the way things are going, and again, I, I emailed the link over to you for what Exodus is working on. Um, they showed a graph of their test results, and it just keeps getting better and better and better. And so, you know, right now, if they were to, to kind of do an aside and say, okay, we're going to take this into space and test it, um, in a sense, by the time it got there, it was already completely outdated. Well, right? wait, wait, so, wait, 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 wait. Remember, remember the old Heinlein story, which I think was called Millennium, about the sublight colonists leaving from Earth for Alpha Centauri? in a sublight spacecraft, which was a generation ship, et cetera, et cetera. And by the time they got there, they were met by their descendants who had simply stepped into a warp drive and were there in 30 seconds or less. Yeah. So yeah. if you wait forever for the right technology, nothing was ever going to happen. At some point, as my grandmother would have said, you've got to do this or get off the you-know-what. So No, it's a good point, although the other – on the counter side of that – All it has to um, do is work. It doesn't have to work perfectly. The the costs of launching these and testing them – now, I'm sure that Barry One benefited from that – are keep going down further and further. And Well, you can probably right, call up Musk and say, how much on a rideshare does it cost to launch this little spacecraft the size of a toaster oven on a rideshare with 90 other payloads, and when do you have an opening? Yeah, and if I remember right, with, so with Starship, when that goes into production, I think that may be down to something like $1,000 a pound. I could be mistaken, but but once you get down to pounds like that, you're talking about a couple hundred thousand bucks, which is well within the range of many corporations, right? So all of a sudden, you'll have all sorts well, of Well, it's well within the range of up. crowdsourcing inventors – who want to basically take it to the public and say, okay, give us a hundred grand and we're going to do this in orbit and make history. In other words, you don't have to depend on a corporation. It can be individual engineers, inventors, garage companies formed like the folks, the cats that you're herding. Yeah. Well, and so a lot of it in terms of crowdsourcing, this comes back to the community thing. And the the other example that I wanted to use was the UAP phenomenon, and and I'm sure that you have seen this, and probably your audience has as well. Is okay again the the National Defense Authorization Act 2024. Congress and the Senate are literally having a fight over who they believe has UFO parts, right? So <laughs> not only do you have official government admission, hey, UFOs are real. Now they're like, okay, who has what and where is it and who can patent it? It's right? almost over, but the shouting. Okay, we've got, we've got Ron Gerbron, who's one of our generalists, our EMT team members on the line. Ron, you got some thoughts? Oh, I need to do – sorry, sorry, sorry. Let me do this. Huh. See, I used to think everything is, is – uh, all right, there we are. There we are. Hello? Okay, you're on the air. Go ahead. Hello? Ron, you're on the air. I thought I was. I'm yelling at the phone. I'm not hearing anything. Uh, you're on the air. I'm muted. I'm muted. How can you be muted? We're hearing you. I hear you, Ron. Oh, now, oh, now you hear me? We've Hello? been hearing you for the last 30 seconds. Go for it. Oh, well, somebody had somebody had to cough or something back so that I knew. Uh, I, uh, I had... 
something's been occurring to me as I as I listen to this, because uh, as Richard already knows, I I noticed the same discrepancy in orbit. Uh, in other words, it was changing when it shouldn't be changing, and I don't uh, I don't I'm not friendly to the idea of, of the sea atmosphere either. Uh, Good. There's a toolbox problem because physics is the use of tools. I mean, even if they're even if they're esoteric or quantum level, we're still mechanically moving around uh, tangible things in most cases. But this physics, hyperdimensional physics, that's not using tools. That's fiddling with the parameters that those tools at that level that we're more familiar with are using and the results can be a little uh, since all since parameters you know structural uh structural uh can be uh they affect everything i mean they affect each other and so you got me thinking about this when you were talking to i believe richard uh about the um uh perhaps the effect that was created by this device this tool was actually having this a different effect because they had kind of misread the interface between uh, the tool tool and this uh, hyperdimensional tool, and so it's perfectly reasonable that it might have affected other things in its vicinity and yet not. I am much to so itself. glad you brought that up because I was going to go exactly there. Remember, I believe experimental evidence over theory. Bruce De Palma, <clears throat> the erstwhile friend of mine, the radical physicist brother of Brian De Palma, the famous movie guy. Bruce De Palma did a series of experiments decades ago in the 70s in a farmhouse in uh, in New Jersey, western New Jersey. And he was working with mechanical systems, Tim, like one of these new space drives, rotating yeah. gyroscopes and pendulums and all that. And he measured with the Acatron that when he brought his Accutron close to a spinning flywheel, which was spinning like something like 3000 RPM, uh, which he'd built specially because it was a, it was a steel band with a concrete center and an axle. And the steel band was to keep the concrete from flying apart under centrifugal forces when it got spun up too fast. And he did all kinds of experiments, including bringing the Accutron close to this simple mechanical spinning system and with nothing electronic involved he found that the the field in the vicinity of the spinning rotor at these incredible high velocities of rotation changed the inertia properties of the tuning fork of the acutron which is where i got the idea to computerize this and make a digital record of all these measurements and Robin and I went all over the world measuring all kinds of things, including ancient sacred sites and Stonehenge, et cetera, et cetera. Now, we flash forward the film. His next experiment was to take the, the spinning disc and to take an ordinary pioneer analog uh, stereo receiver with tubes, okay? And he brought the two near each other. And he found that the rapidly spinning disc, which was creating this weird field around it, literally affected the reception 
properties of the tuner to where the frequency of the station he was listening to out of New York, which is WOR, uh, actually changed. There was now, no. You were saying that was it was metal, but not magnetic, right? Well, no, it was it was it was steel a steel band around a concrete substrate. So the steel was simply there to keep the concrete from flying apart because of centrifugal force. So most of the several hundred pound weight was the concrete. The steel oh, okay. was a, was a okay. minor portion, and he used you know screens. He used Faraday cages. He knew all the physics stuff to screen from magnetic fields, electrostatic and all that. What he found was the hyperdimensional field around a spinning physically changed the electromagnetic properties of the receiver, and so he couldn't listen to WOR anymore. And then he'd move the disc away, and the receiver would lock back up on the right frequency. So I said to Greg early on in this experiment, if they did not measure in their vacuum tests the electromagnetic side effect, of turning on this drive and realizing it might compromise their electrical systems in the spacecraft or give spurious Doppler readings for NORAD and NASA tracking the spacecraft, the readings we're getting are anomalous because the drive is working, but it has parameters that were totally unmodeled by their ground test vacuum operations before they went to orbit. Uh, Richard, you're right, but, and he was wrong. But it's not; it's a tool uh, working against working against the substrate or the matrix under which all those tools work. It's the it's the nail denting the hammer, and that's the way they're they're looking at it wrong. It's not creating an analog effect to a regular physics. Don't know what else to call it. Uh, effect. It's messing with the structural uh, aspects of the universe. No, exactly. We're both in total agreement. Because remember, in my model, electromagnetism prescinds from the hyperdimensional physics. It's not a prime quantity. It's a secondary effect. So it stands to reason. But since these guys don't realize they're dealing with a hyperdimensional physics, they never included in their tests interference in the ground test with radios, transmitters, receivers. So the fact that the skin track of Barry One is being affected means to me that the way the electromagnetic waves are reflecting off Barry One is literally part of the physics they're trying to use without understanding how it really works. They're trying to mimic uh, normal level physics with the uh, prog- progress of time and the interaction of, of defined forces. And yeah, this is a level beyond that. That's all. So let me, let me go back to my wish list of places I would like to go. If you could provide me, Tim, with a working space drive to put in a spacecraft, what I would do is marry state-of-the-art technologies. You know, there's all kinds of companies building working spacecraft now, right? Yeah. With working cameras, working radios, working everything. It's like you can, you can, you know, one part from column A, one part from column B. You can assemble a functioning spacecraft for a fraction of the cost now that NASA would pay or a major corporation would pay. And we know the damn things work. In fact, a lot of NASA technology is now repurposed 
commercial technology that's simply been kind of improved a bit, like the GoPro TV cameras on Perseverance, right? Yeah, yeah. So what I would do is to marry a real space drive with a real spacecraft with sensors, and I would send it chasing after a Muamua. Because a Muamua, from my research and Abby Loeb's research, totally separate, we've come to the exact same conclusion. It's a real interstellar artificial spacecraft that somehow got waylaid as it went through the solar system. And by going out and going into orbit around it and taking stunning close-up video and transmitting that back to the inner solar system in the next few months, I mean, conventional technology would require years and millions, hundreds of millions of dollars to create a spacecraft which could travel out and rendezvous with a Muamua. A off-the-shelf CubeSat commercial spacecraft produced in a lab in Pittsburgh or Houston or Salt Lake City or Seattle or wherever, if you marry it to one of these drives that works, you could get to Oumuamua in literally weeks, weeks. And you could stay there as long as you wanted, and then you could come home, all within current existing technology because of what Barry One is doing in Earth orbit tonight. Yeah, and you you might need to be there for a while. I have a feeling that if even if it is a spacecraft, it would be hollowed out of an asteroid. So you would probably well, be- we don't know. All we know is the light curve corresponds to a very long, thin, pencil-like object rotating yeah. end over end every seven point something hours. Well, no, the reason I mentioned that is that this this goes to some other research. But as you know, right, the radiation is an issue, especially when you get into deep space. You get those high energy gamma rays, and so, so uh, it, you know. Well, hang on, hang on, of- hang on. Let's go to another implication. Don't you think that a proper understanding of the engineering of this technology also t- takes you to shields, radiation shields that are almost powerless, but can I- stop or deflect whatever high-energy cosmic particle you might encounter up to and maybe even including electromagnetic radiation? Because if it's affecting the electromagnetic radiation coming to and from Barry 1, if that's why they lost contact, because they have no idea their damn device is working super well, but it has this nasty side effect, you can imagine ultimately creating a technology where you could dome over every city on planet earth and no one with a nuclear weapon could even get through. Yeah. I can't envision it working Mm -hmm. that well, but why not? Well, I mean, just based on, based on these kind of electrostatic. see, See what you can't imagine, you can't see or envision. Our problem, I think, today is we have too many people with too limited imaginations not understanding the stunning revolution even one of these technologies represents. Just one. Only have to have one to work, and then everything changes. Now, the rate at which it changes, that's you know, variable. It will change, and I think it's going to yeah. change at very fast rates because the biggest impediment is people thinking, oh, it's impossible. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, Ron. 
Well, it makes me think of gambling. Why do people gamble? They gamble because they think that they can have an effect on the universe around them. Uh, they can modify the matrix, as it were. That's the next level I'm talking about. I mean, people that gamble because they think the odds are on their side trying to use a tool. People that uh, people that think they can, with psychokinesis, affect the dice. Uh, again, well, they're looking for a direct well, brilliant, route. It's brilliant, brilliant idea because psychokinesis in our model is nothing but hyperdimensional physics. So if you gamble, it's a way of implementing it. Yes. Exactly, but it, it requires it requires a biological consciousness to do it, unless you create a technology to basically tip the dice, make them all come up sevens every time, and you wind up owning Las Vegas. Right, and I'm saying that's the hard way. The easy way <laughs> is the people that just go in into the casino with their uh, their heart just bursting with um, positivity about their ability to have things right. work their way. And what they're doing is a localized change in the reality. Not yeah, we're basically, a, not a we, are, we are basically saying the same thing. And what yeah. I'm saying is that once this technology is widely understood, meaning it's it goes viral, people talk about it, the next step is how can it work for humanity right now to change a terribly dismal future to one where we all survive and we live happily ever after and I'm not using that merely as a tagline because death itself is somehow connected to hyperdimensional physics. Oh, sure. Hey, so Richard. Yes, yes, Greg. Go ahead. Yeah, I wanted to go back real quick to the uh, to that Norway spiral in 2009. Ah, yes. You know, and, and we we spent a lot of time studying that. And, you know, there was a, a submarine-launched ballistic missile out of, out of... It was in the Baltic Sea. The North, the White Sea. Uh, Wasn't the Baltic? I thought it was the Baltic. Anyway, go ahead. Possibly. Uh, the White Sea, I think. But it was, sh- it was shooting over to Vladivostok. But the, the, where they were taking the pictures up in Norway was perpendicular to the path of this rocket. Exactly. And so... We were able to determine not only that it was the third stage of a rocket that that was spitting out fire, whatever, and spinning around, making making that spiral, but there was also another helical beam coming up from someplace in yep. Russia. Yep. And we determined also because. That motion should have kept on going at the same speed and heading on towards Vladivostok. <laughs> yep. But we determined that it slowed down to about the speed of a Cessna. Yes. In and, orbit. In orbit. So, you know, a suborbit or... So you're looking at secret Russian technology testing a la all the public work they've done going back to Kozarev and others. Right. Uh, Akimov, he's the theorist in the hyperdimensional equations. You're looking at the at the at the Soviet slash Russian military testing a hyperdimensional technology that now I think is what's really being talked about in this sudden oh my God they're going to nuke space. Well, I think it and and the coincidence 
that Obama, President Obama, was going to Oslo, Norway, or Oslo, Sweden, to pick up his Nobel day, Prize. To get the Nobel Prize for peace, and these <laughs> Russians shooting off this interballistic missile. Anyway, and then this test, and I think it was was a harp site, or not not harp technically, but a similar type of situation in in European in European Russia that sent that beam up and stopped that, slowed immensely the speed of that rocket. Um, you know, just a weird coincidence. <laughs> well, there <laughs> were all kinds of, there were all kinds of really bizarre theories. Like some people were saying, oh, it's CERN opening up a wormhole. Right. Yeah. But no, well, people, no, no, it wasn't. But anyway, yeah, but that, and then we published it in the enterprise mission Website didn't get much on traction of what, other than a lot of people, you know, actually believe that it, you know, was a rocket that malfunctioned. Tim, do, do any of your guys have a device which is small enough to be carried in a briefcase in your lap, complete with power supply? Uh, in, in terms of building a device like that. Say, uh, I mean, wait a minute. I, I didn't hear you. There was some noise. Go ahead. Like, like a propulsion device. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I, I mean, you could build them any size, but it, again, these guys are working in labs, and so these are, you, you know. It's, yeah, but you know, at some point, you have to have a flight model. You have to have something yeah. you take to the field to demonstrate in the wild. If the wild is on Earth or in space, it's kind of almost irrelevant at the first level. Because what I'm thinking is, I know exactly how. One of these engineers can literally test his thing in orbit without a huge fuss. He or people around him buy him a ticket, Bezos. He takes his gadget up in, in Bezos' spacecraft. He's got five minutes of weightlessness. He releases a briefcase. It runs from his lap to the wall and sits there. It changes the trajectory of the falling Bezos' spacecraft. The ground trackers go... What are you guys doing? And he's demonstrated for a couple hundred thousand dollars anti-gravity in zero-G on live television. Go. There you go. Mm. Well, yeah. I'm, you know, we're, we're not at that point yet, but those are... You know, but you need to think to... big. Big, really big, as big as the solar system or, or bigger. Yeah, so... Remember the old, well, Carl, guys... remember the old Carl Sagan joke? You don't, okay? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, Carl was a friend of mine. Uh, somebody, you know, the, the joke started going around that we were going to have a, near, a new NASA flyby, and it was going to be of the largest egosphere in the solar system, Carl Sagan. Oh, there you go. Mm-hmm. Anyway, you were going to say, and we only have two minutes. So anyway. Yeah, I, I, well, thank, thank you for having me on, Richard. Thank you for having me on this evening. It's been wonderful joining you. Well, and, well thank uh, you, and we've got to do this more often. And I'd like to have one of your guys come on with you to talk about the nuts and bolts, literally, of what they're doing, what they want to do, what kind of support they need, because there are a lot of people <clears throat> who listen to the show that could be maybe helpful. Yeah. Well, until next time, sir, thank you for having me on, and we'll, we'll see what we can do in terms of follow-ups. So, so Ron, any last thoughts? Um, 
complicated ones. It's okay. It's, uh, okay, I'll try once more on the difference between tools and non-tools. It's take a big spotlight with a red filter on it, shine it around because you have, have to do something where you have to have red light. That's right. what we're doing. We're changing the color of the light uh, and by doing stuff with tools that don't directly affect it anyway. So uh, that's why they're having a problem getting it to work, and yet it works when it feels like it. Oh, do you know what the effects that we're looking for? Oops, oops, hmm? oops, oops. You're coming in on the channel where she inter interrupts you. One of the really bizarre things of the IBO technology that I didn't get to mention to Tim that tells me it's hyperdimensional, it doesn't mm -hmm. work all the time, even in the laboratories here on Earth before they launch to orbit. The only engineering and physics I know that doesn't work all the time because it requires gates and resonance, thank you, is hyperdimensional physics technology. Anyway, <clears throat> I want to thank uh, my yeah, guests, Tim Ventura and Greg Ahrens and Ron Gerbron. All very important thoughts. And in the next week, if we're basically appropriate to what we talked about last night and the moon, a guy named uh, David Copperfield may be conducting the biggest public experiment of all in HD physics, which is he's going to make the moon disappear next week, next Sunday night. So until then, same time, same bad channel. Remember, third star on the left, straight on till morning. Good night, everyone. <laughs>